A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. You're probably ahead of us right now because Crossland is a fuck up and mistranslated our reading from last week's last week's notes that he was reading off of and said we were going through chapter 16. That was a lie that he perpetuated through all of our social media accounts and repeated that lie incessantly. We're only going through 15. Yep. Blame him. Hey there, this is Cross. Fuck you. I'm PJ. (laughs) And I've been slandered. We are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. You're fine. It's fine. A five looks like a six, especially the way you write. So I get it. You're okay. I don't blame you that much. You're not far off base. The problem is, is that I interpreted my typing, which is worse. Hmm. Somehow don't, I, don't I dig yourself it. deeper. I fucked up. <laughs> you know, I, I Take have to be up. honest because I knew, I knew exactly the way that I wanted this to break down with like almost beginning, beginning with a miles chapter or sorry, we begin with Wayne, but I wanted to include these two Miles chapters together to give us kind of some point references between the conversations. And I thought that that was as far as we could stretch it time wise as well in terms of what we could talk about in an episode. So like I was like, oh, God, this is as much as we can do because I really was going to cut it off at 14 because of page length. But I also wanted what's in 15 in the episode because I thought it was kind of a nice full circle moment especially since this book is being broken up just into three episodes so right with that said today is our second episode discussing the alloy of law by brandon sanderson and we are chatting about chapters 8 through 15 despite my fuck up so next week 16 through the end i'm sorry i'm so sorry 16 is not super like it's not super thick pj actually has read it already so like i'm not gonna downplay that i just and it's a rare occasion there's not a whole lot of reveals that happen yeah. that I'll have to like pretend not to know or anything like that. Right. Like it's right. it's like a it's like a train scene. Yeah. It's you know, it's just another another brief. It's a brief chapter, too, which is why I was almost like maybe we'll include it anyway. And then I was like, no, nah, fuck it. That's too much. So and that would make next week so short because it's effectively five chapters, including the epilogue. So. Yeah, I was just like, yeah, can't can't do it. So we're including it. But before we get too far into the weeds like we already are, PJ, I do need to bring up something before we talk about what we're drinking. I did have it pointed out to me this week that I did not lead you back to path on something a little bit. And I agree with it. And I, I think that it's important that I do. So we were talking last week about talking about silver and its non-reactivity reactivity or its inertness in terms of the alimantic table. You had posited that there were two metals that were non-reactive. That isn't correct. Do you remember what we're talking about? Yeah. I mean, talking about aluminum, talking about silver. I remember Vin had her chains and she was talking about how clever it was that anything like metal fasteners, nails, screws, they were all made of silver. So she couldn't get out of them or like push on. Them. 
that's because silver can't be burned. So like even if she shaved any of the silver off to eat it, it couldn't do anything for her. Not because silver can't be pushed upon, pulled upon, or otherwise manipulated. Which are different clarifications. Okay. Does that make sense? It's like... It was it was kind of like a partial correct. It's not like you were entirely wrong. It's just that it isn't the same as aluminum, of which is literally not even visible from Alamancy's perspective. Can she push on silver? Yes, but she was depleted of her alimantic minerals. Right. Okay. Moment. Okay. Now yeah. I understand. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So it's small small thing. No, that's, that we just yeah. there. There were a couple of other points that I kind of disagree with because of book context, but that one I so firmly agree. Thank you for bringing it up, Zypris. And for kind of making sure that we we clarify that a little bit and quantify that here. So we're going to talk about another one that you brought up here because it's actually pretty much talked about inside of this chapter, which is, you know, I, I think a lot of anytime I get sent corrections or things like that about the way that we do this, sometimes it's important to remember that we can only go so far and that I try to keep as many extra textual things out as possible. And in addition, often inside of the Cosmere, later reveals really inform earlier like context and so we don't know some of these things fully yet to even quantify old things so this does bring up a good point okay so first of all we can't get into everything because we don't have time to because cross and i recorded for five and a half hours last episode it's true and it was still it you only heard three hours (laughs) so yeah so there's that but going back to the context of the book a little bit does this mean we can't actually push on bananas (laughs) it does in fact mean that bananas are non-elementically reactive i'm so sorry and therefore can't be pushed upon man i don't know that depends are bananas an alloy it sounds like bananas are an alloy because i mean potassium's in the banana the rest of it is fleshy flesh i don't know Mm. it's a good question i'm putting that on my list man for uh, dragon steel yeah (laughs) do it if that's the question I ask, I want, the man, I want, I'm going to be so. You would better. You, I need a Christmas gift or something. I want like, lurcher, I need something. I for want lurcher orangutans. <laughs> it's the worst. Thing. <laughs> okay, cool. I love it. Let's talk about what we're drinking to start this off. We're recording this in the morning, so it's a little bit of a different thing. What are you having this morning? Death morning cocktails morning. are different. Death by morning. <laughs> so I, I was. Toying with the idea of doing something I wanted to call double gold, kind of playing into the context of the book, understanding what Miles is, and going into like gold and seeing yourself a little bit. And absinthe is historically referred to as like something that can cause hallucinations. It's not true. It was widely just a marketing gimmick, but either way... Playing into that, I wanted to make an absinthe drink called Double Gold, and I ended up on wondering, oh, can I do anything with absinthe and coffee? And I was looking, and there's a couple different coffee absinthe drinks called the fly, like one is called the Flying Frenchman. I didn't really look into that, but this one was called Death by Morning, and it is three and a, or three quarters ounce of absinthe, half an ounce of Fernet Branca, half an ounce of coffee liqueur. It calls for a bar spoon of demerar demerar sugar i didn't have that so i used a quarter ounce of turbinado sugar syrup Um, it's close yeah not perfect but close right exactly it's my go-to replacement one dash of angostura bitters 
an ounce and a half of coffee. It calls for espresso, had leftover coffee and didn't want to make espresso and then cool it down. So all that stirred and served into a Nicanora glass, which I had expressed orange over and then garnished with a mint. So honestly, it does not call for Fernet Branca. It calls for Fernet Menta, which is made by the same company. Oh, yep. but it's a little bit less aggressive in flavor. It's a little bit smoother and a little bit more subtle. And mm-hmm. this is clearly Fernet forward. So Yeah. Is I, it is it too much, do you think? None of the other flavors really come through as much. You get a little bit of absinthe, but it's mostly Fernet. Don't really get the coffee at all, honestly. And that'd be better with espresso, I know. I would just cut the fernet to like a quarter ounce even in this the way I the way I built this. But it's not Done. bad. It's good. Like I I'm enjoying it. Yeah. I might cut the sugar cool. down even a little bit more, but I think that's mostly due to the fact that I used Kahlua for the coffee liqueur, which is notoriously ah, sweet. which is already going to be more sweet. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Versus something like a grind or Mr. Coffee. Yeah. yeah. Even grind's pretty sweet. Yeah, but it's not it's not the same kind of sweetness. It's not like the creamy sweetness that Kahlua has. There's like a little bit more of that rum punch and I a right. grind is sweet for sure, but it's not it's not the same. I don't know. Yeah. I do so. feel that though. Cool. What are chasing? Chasing that with passionberry peach puff tart from the brewing project. It is mm-hmm. a sour ale with milk sugar, passion fruit, peach, blackberry, and marshmallow flavoring. Nice. So should be pretty good. It's, I mean, it's a fruity smoothie sour from Brewing Project. They're always delicious, but definitely more sweet than sour, as that style tends to be. Cool. Yeah. Love it. What about you? I, you know, so it's morning, and I do like a Bloody Mary. And I got it in my head last night that I didn't want to make a Bloody Mary. I want to make a Bloody Maria. I've got good tequila. I've got, like, a lot of the things that I need on hand to do that. However... I was also like getting mixed up in like thinking about the book and story because I was up until 2 a.m. writing notes and I was just kind of consumed by it in a big way and was trying to come up with something that kind of could fit the line of like maybe something Blackbeard inspired and do something like, you know, Edward Teachish with a Mary calling it, you know, I, I think his name is Mary's Revenge, the name of his boat. And so like calling it that and playing around with shit, I ended up. In a very different territory, but inspired blood by the Bloody Mary. So I'm calling it a blood seeker because why the fuck not? The ferrochemical power for for rejuvenation and life and health. I love that as a as a name for what this beverage is, you know, a, a morning drink. So it is a spin on a Bloody Mary. So I'll, I'll run through that. Bloody Maria even. So it is two ounces of tequila, a quarter ounce of, fer- or, sorry, not a quarter, a half an ounce of Fernet, two dashes of Angostura bitter, Charleston Southern Devil Mix, which is a local mix here that's just a spicier mix and a little bit more of an herbal blend, which I really love. Crystal Louisiana Hot Sauce, five dashes of that. I think it's got a lot more flavor often in a lot of like base mixes. You'll see Red Hot used or like Frank's Red Hot. That's like oddly creamy. I don't love it. Bloody Marys are totally to your own taste. So like take the initial inspiration and then change it from there as it fits your taste. Ten dashes of Tabasco and one dash of a Trinidad Scorpion hot sauce to like give it a full full cut of super heat because I love giving it a little bit of spicy. So you want some of that like vinegary backbone and then that hit a mm-hmm. hit of spice. So So is crystal not uh, vinegar based? 
It is, but it's less vinegar based. Like it is still a vinegar based hot sauce, but it it it's somewhere between Frank's and Tabasco. If I if I'm considering those as like poles of those like entry level Louisiana style sauces, it's somewhere in the middle. And I think it does a better job of moderating the vinegar with better pepper and like tomato flavors. Okay. So, yeah, I was curious the decision to do Tabasco and Crystal, but that makes sense. That's that's ultimately why is because it kind of bridges that gap a little bit better and gives it not the full creaminess, but it blends a little bit better and it's not as vinegary, but still gives you spice. And then the Tabasco for vinegar. The one one thing that I forgot to do that I usually do is take a little bit of pickle brine and add that in as well, just for a little bit of salt. Instead, I did ground pepper and ground salt. So, OK, gotcha. Just to kind of top it because I, I didn't have the volume. I did add a pinch of kosher salt into this oh, cocktail nice which is something i've been doing more and more of after reading through liquid intelligence yeah just, just a little bit of salt because almost nothing has a salt backing right and that's like a base flavor profile yeah, so it really amplifies everything like it does for food yeah hmm. exactly that's you know or shocked yeah i'm following that up with kind of a classic an us classic one of my favorite you know like easy to find easy to go to beers a flying dog double dog which is just it's great flying so. dog is double dog one of their belgians no it's the double ipa it's a double ipa okay they for me are the best like find anywhere Belgian IPAs, you can't find many of them. We did one at LTS when I worked there called Illumination. But just that, I just love the combination of the traditional, like, traditional IPA hop characters with the Belgian yeast. And you don't see it mm -hmm. often. St. Paul's Brewing, yep. which used to be called St. Paul Flat Earth, did one called Waffle Dog. That was really good. But I think it's Raging Bitch is... Yep, Raging uh, Bitch is the Belgian. Is, yeah. yeah, Flying Dog's Belgian. Sorry. I know that's not what you're drinking, but I had to go off on it because... <clears throat> no, and, but that's entirely, like, the reason that I got this, I, this time, I was staring at, like, a selection this morning, thinking about, like, what I wanted to follow up this drink with. A, I think Flying Dog has some of the best commercially available beers, most consistent, pretty much anywhere you can find them. I mean... Them and bells. I, I remember, yeah, bells as well. Those are those are kind of the two that I'm I go to the most. Occasionally, Rogue does a good enough job with some of like the some of theirs, but the, you know, it's all it's all fairly the same. At the very least, Flying Dog has very defined flavors, and I feel like they've stuck with it and haven't gotten weaker or diluted over the years. And so that's really why you know I kind of decided. Are they still independent? I think so. I don't know. I don't know what I love about them as well from just a full package standpoint mm -hmm. is their their artist for all their can art is Gonzo. Sounds guy, right. The guy who did all the art for what the fuck? Why am I blanking? Fear and loathing guy. Hunter S. Thompson. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He did all the illustration for Hunter S. Thompson. His name is Ralph Stedman. Ralph Stedman. Um, he did Gonzo. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Flying dog brewing. They are independent for the record. They are an independent brewery, which is crazy. That's I awesome. I actually didn't know that. That's I so assumed that they were a distributed beer and that makes me like it even more actually. So that's sweet because I, I figured it was owned by one of the big, yep. big distributors. Nope. So there you go. Yep. They're good. They're good stuff. I like them. Dogfish head yep. is in a similar boat as them as well. I think. Yeah. Right. Right. They're small brewery that i don't think anyone's bought so 
still big nationally distributed but small enough Mm -hmm. that they're not owned yeah or good enough that they're not owned i guess is very true like i mean comparatively like voodoo ranger for instance and rogue i I think are both ranger is new belgium right yes and i think new belgium is owned by heineken baby and bev is it heineken i can't that sounds right regardless it's one of the big brands so same same as the people that own lagunitas oh bells got bought didn't Mm -hmm. they did bells get bought i think bells did get bought i bet you're right or there was talk of them being bought little to lion little world beverages is that who owns sapporo maybe merges with new belgian under kieran okay kieran owner like the the yeah company that owns kieran Yep. And Kieran does own Sapporo, I believe, and a ton of other distributors. Anyway, that's very interesting that it's owned by a Japanese company. That's not one of the big, you know, like not one of the big players in America. So I'm more down with that than, I guess, yeah. <laughs> you know, more consolidation under AB and Bev. Yeah, and they, they did some real course. shady, like real shady stuff, though, with, Kieran? Their, with their funding mm. and things that they funded. Well, that's not something to get into here. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Fair enough. With that, we'll leave our little drink segment here. And before we start the chapters, PJ, I just want a little 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 talk about what you liked about this week. How are you feeling? I am fully invested. Fully invested? <laughs> I'm just invested. <laughs> invested in the you're, characters, you're invested powers. in the story. I'm feeling it, man. Mm-hmm. Which I feel like I should be at this point in the story. We're more than halfway through. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Feeling good about them. Yeah, this book is the way that I broke it up is basically into thirds, 20,000 words a week ish with a little bit of leeway. And yeah, you should be invested. The question is, is are you invested enough to read? You know, maybe this is the question. Are you invested enough to read like four more books with these characters or three more books with these characters? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think so. You played that so (laughs) fucking nonchalantly. Okay. All right. Yes. Yes, I am. I still have some things that. I know you will point to as evolutions and improvements in Brandon's writing that I liked better in the first series, but that's just a quirk of mine I I can understand. So there's that. But yeah, that's a small hiccup to to land on. You know, one one of the things that he says in the annotations, one of his goals with this book was to have something that actually had a brisk pace and wasn't so epic in scope and, you know, like really kind of filled out with sort of the things that he had called like hallmarks of epic fantasy, which makes sense. He had just written four back-to-back epic fantasy novels like we talked about before. So like him wanting to write something that's shorter, faster, punchier makes so much sense. I mean, with three Wheel of Time books and The Way of Kings under his belt, that's, I think we said it before, but it's like over 1.6 million words in four years. And he was like, God, I just want something that's like just punchy and not as like meaty and crazy mm-hmm. so and then he turned this into something it. meaty and or meaty and crazy yeah right but you can tell well, yeah. that this is like a breakneck speed kind of story for him mm-hmm. yeah yeah he's he's flying by all accounts so with that we get into chapter eight here to avoid having a five and a half hour episode, we're going to just we're just going to we're going to get into it right away. So this week we start with a new point of view, of course, and that's Wayne's point of view. You knew it was coming, right? Like it had to be coming given everything that we knew and kind of hopping around. 
and boy, it's it's a whimsical switch in tone and also kind of uh, a literal switch in tone in some cases. I have to recommend the audiobook here as Kramer's accent work and character work within Wayne's monologue and inner monologue, outer monologue is top fucking notch. Like the way that he he moves between accents trying to be like, OK, this is this. This is that. And Wayne is trying to piece it out in text form is so it's it's a lovely combination. Yeah, it is. My stand in right now for the breakdown of combat <laughs> and what I loved about the breakdown of combat in the first era, I feel mm. like I'm getting that level of satisfaction in his breakdown of like accent and costume choices and like persona <laughs> choices throughout this story. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. It's man. Michael Kramer was the guy who did Michael Kramer and Kate Redding did all of the voice work for the wheel of time as well. And growing up, I listened to them through a couple of those books and then didn't for a very long time came to Mistborn, reading Mistborn again, heard those voices and it was so wonderful. And then you really, I felt like he was really flexing here. Like this is very much like a voice actors. Like I get to play the part of an actor trying to act. And so mm -hmm. it was like, it's, it's such a like meaty thing to sink your teeth into. And it's, I, I just loved it. It's an amazing performance. It's really, really mm -hmm. well done. And my only complaint about the audiobook compared to some of the other audiobooks that we've had so far, and maybe it's just a quirk of my copy of it on audiobooks.com as opposed to Audible, which I really should shift over. I should switch over to that, but haven't. I log in. I, I own all of the books we're ever going to right. talk about. I'll listen on yours then. Okay, but the audio quality is so much more, so much lower, even compared to the first Mistborn books for some reason. Like, it's just grainy. That's got to be audiobooks.com. There's none of that in Audible. I don't know. Weird. That's got to be audiobooks.com. I'm going to, I'm going to just posit that that's okay. probably what it is, which is very odd, I would, I would say, because I have no sure. audio quality issues. That's, that's what's, hmm. okay. Yeah. Weird. Switch, you bastard. Just make the switch, goddammit. All right. <clears throat> Wayne's guys that he barters for, and the whole interaction that is that of like a consummate con man and quite the method actor. We've been talking about this acting already a little bit. But when he confront confronts Breton in his new disguise, man, this whole scene just unwinds wonderfully. Like a play on the idea of like a fantasy police procedural. It's it's just awesome. I, I really really love the whole thing the whole prior claim and missive bit as it goes back and forth like a juggling of of the joke being like oh we sent a missive and like oh we sent a missive and you didn't see it you even hired a girl like so good it's a perfect little dance yeah it's it's done so well to the point where you don't know how much is con man and how much is research and we still don't know that truly like how much of this was information gained through his his understanding of how police work and like investigations go how much of it is recon on the other precinct that he was we knew he was there he got the uniform from it like he's he was there so he could have gotten some research off page but it's also like he knows everything about this guy and how to interact with him and it's clearly a be confident and act like we you know what you're doing and he's prone to believe you kind of deal so i don't know it was a fun fun passage to read 
Yeah, totally. And like you said, it's it's such a brilliant balance of of like knowing exactly what Wayne is going to do and like him being like I said, a consummate con man, but at the same time being such a method actor that it's like it's unclear. And especially when you get Wayne's backstory later, it's even kind of flirt further blurred because he was kind of a thief and kind of I mean, this is the way that he copes with the world. This is the way that he lives, you know, kind of doing right and whatnot. And it I don't know, it just makes Wayne such a, a lovely character to be in. Can he be cheesy at times? Absolutely. Absolutely. He can be a little over the top and you know, I think I think cheesy sums it up, but like I still yeah. think it's wonderful. So we've talked quite a bit more off recording than than on, but we we've mentioned it a few times in the show, talking about a Mistborn video game and like how that might get adapted. I know there was some sort of thing that was like in existence for a little while, right? That was a project to show how it could be done in Unreal. Yes. Okay. But that was not a... Oh, there was also a project that was being worked on by Brandon that was like a prequel, basically. Not with Kelsier, not with most of the crew, but associated with the world and the final empire. I think it's a mistake, and I can't believe we haven't talked about this. And maybe we did, and I completely forgot about it, and now I'm bringing it up like it's my idea. But this as a tabletop RPG makes so much more sense buddy it exists we're playing it fun fact for you two of the short stories that are in arcanum unbounded of which you can read both of them now without problems so the 11th metal and the pits of melantia are both actually derived from the mistworn books so they're from the there were short stories that brandon wrote as inserts into the books themselves just to give some world context and some ideas and show things in action but they're canon too so okay how does that play into tabletop well they're they're in the tabletop books so they're they were originally published oh. in the tabletop books only so they were gotcha. like canon pieces inside of the books and then I they thought, were compiled I you meant into, into the canon. like mistborn era one books i misunderstood what you, what you said oh yeah no so 11th metal is obviously era one there was an era one tabletop book and there is an era two expansion with kind of some of the fairing and twin born and stuff like that coloss blooded in addition to this second short story so yeah both of those are kind of attached at the hip in their own right okay well we should play that yeah i think it would be cool it would be a cool thing to do on uh, on catacomb party we'll see could be fun for a little one shot be fun for a one shot could be fun as a game night thing Sometimes could be fun as a game night thing. That would be that'd be a little intense for game night, but it could work. It'd take a lot of prep. It would take a lot of prep, but you know, something we could pull off might be fun. Regardless, I, I think that, like you said, it is rife for a tabletop because because the rules are so hard, because all of this is so hardened, it makes it so that there is a physical system that you can latch into very easily and play inside of the RPG space without a whole lot of work. Mm-hmm. And removing the focus on the mistborn kind of side of things makes this mm-hmm. like perfectly set up as classes for different exactly yeah parties yeah to be crafted right and especially with twinborn at play right this is actually something i i haven't talked about this at all we haven't talked about this at all in the show but 17th shard actually is a show going on called diceborn that i think they're doing one episode a month or two which is just a a fun show which is an rpg show using the rpg system from mistborn so 
I've been watching the episodes. They have it. It's a video podcast in addition to an audio. Apparently, it's really great. Apparently, people love the production design of it. So I, you know, I, I personally haven't watched it to recommend it, but I would say I trust everything else that I've seen from 17 Chart. Obviously, we invited them on the show. I assume it's at the same quality, if not better. Well, wonderful. I probably won't you can't be able to it. check it yeah. out. But you're welcome, everybody, for this amazing idea that I absolutely like yeah. originally came up with. So, bruv, at the end of December, <laughs> you can check it out. So okay. sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Crossland. Yeah. Four months so. away. Five months away. That's not that bad. That's better than our average. We're reading so many books so quickly. We're stuffing in like a novella in the middle. Like we've we've got a lot. We're covering we a, lot a lot of ground. Yeah, that's true. But I mean. As such, Wayne begins to like play this information of the individuals against each other very well and manages to weasel his way past this prickly Connor in the form of Breton. I love that he calls him Connor and then like gradually shifts to constable and then shifts back to Connor as he like gets in and out of the role that he's playing. It's mm-hmm. a really great like little language flex from Brandon that I appreciate. The two interviews themselves are really interesting comparing them back to back. What do you make of the first disguised ally kill the cops stole the uniform adjacent conversation and then using that information that he gained against the second? I mean this everything about this chapter and this scene specifically is fucking brilliant and it's a better police procedural than any actual police procedural I've actually seen. So I fucking love it. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to expand upon that. Like, I just love it. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. When he's talking with Breton, he says, you know, like bringing dice to a card game and like kind of the, the pitch there back and forth. Or rather, he's not talking to Breton, but he's thinking about the people who brought guns when he had dueling canes and how like inappropriate that was, like bringing dice to a card game. And I, I like that he kind of inverted the the tropey conversation and colloquialism there a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's It's a fun spin on the idea. But. To talk about the police procedural thing a little bit, definitely agree, definitely love it. It, My first instinct, and I knew that you weren't going to get the comparison because I don't think you've seen it, was Lucifer, which is a lot of inversion on the police procedural trips while still being kind of a, a murder investigation show for the most part for the first couple of seasons. It, it reminds me of that most, which is maybe the most comedic and clever take on a show like that that I've seen while inverting it and involving, you know, the devil and everything else. It's it's very it's got a similar tone and I loved it. I love I love the show. I love this depiction here because it it's very reminiscent of that of that same tone. Nice. I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's it's a fun show to throw on, you know, every once in a while in the background. It's not something you have to pay a ton of attention to until like the last season, but throw it on the pile. Yep, throw it on the burn pile. That and flea bag or else Ivana will get you. So mm. <laughs> I really love the line that he has uh, with the first of the vanishers talking about seeing you shake hands with old iron eyes. It's simple, but builds out this idea that Marsha's old depictions depiction has like become one of death or has grown to become one of death as a part of sliverism. What do you think? First of all, just in general, I'm really appreciating all the little nods to our admittedly very important characters that we've kind of lived with in the last era. It's nice to read. It's it makes me happy going through this. I was always thinking about like, is there anything here that actually confirms that Marsh is dead? And there's one comment later on that talks about the tomb of 
old iron eyes, but that still doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that he's dead. I don't know. I like to think he's still kicking around. I think he okay. is. Yeah, I, I believe he is. He's coming. For okay. It. He's sitting in wait. He's a hermit now. Sorry, folks. I'm just turning this into a prediction. Didn't that, wasn't that already a prediction? Kind of. Yeah, actually, you're right. It was a prediction of who's alive and who's dead. So you're just sticking with that, which, you know, makes sense. But they do say to move old iron eyes. I think it's in the last chapter. I think it's something that Miles kind of whispers to himself when he's like running through things in the in his head. He's like by the tomb of old iron eyes or something. Yeah, it like was that. it was used as kind of a, an exclamation. Another swear filler. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Oh, it's going to really feel love real, the line. real good when one of them just says fuck sometime. PJ, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this. Brandon Sanderson is Mormon, and so I don't think it's going to be We know from firsthand knowledge that you can frustrate Mormons enough to get them to swear. We'll not reveal our friend. Um, it was a game. Show. It's true. It's true. That we played. I, I mean, we I, were teenagers, so it was true. maybe a misguided game, but we played a game. and We did. We did. You know, in post. Yeah. It was truly more justification in the back end of us playing poorly and saying, no, we were doing that to frustrate you. <laughs> and it was more just us being bad it's at true. video games. Us. How dare you rope me in with you? Yep. Yeah. Ah, got him. Mm. Got him. That mm. said, is he going to publish it? That's completely different. <laughs> I really love the line that he has with the first adventures talking about seeing you shake hand. Fuck. I already said that for the record. It's not that this is too hot. But it is causing me to salivate more because it's spicy. And so it's like throwing my whole game off in my head. So I'm dealing with another factor that I don't usually deal with on the show. Crossland too wet. Too wet. <laughs> Jeez. So to talk about the information given itself, the vanagers are the vanagers. The vanishers are located in the old foundry over in Longguard and that they only operate out of this single location. We kind of work it out backwards as he's like oh, this is the only location you know of and plays it up in a fun way. With that, Wayne departs and and Breton. What the fuck did I? I don't know what you wrote. Then I really can't understand it. Ah, yes, that's what I meant. So it was like Dennis the Menace, but Breton the Menace. But anyway, okay. With that, Wayne departs and Breton the Menace is left without any perfect clarity on what exactly this constable is attempting to accomplish. It's a clean getaway, especially considering he stole a bunch of scones. Sorry, was given. <laughs> was given scones. Was, I mean, because absconded with, yeah. Is not allowed to steal anything other than accents. And mm-hmm. yeah, anymore. I love his he's, code of ethics. I really do. Because he's like, I don't, I don't think it's ingenuine. I don't think it's disingenuous that he's like truly committed to making sure that everything he does is a fair trade if he's taking something. It's just that he attributes attributes it strictly to like value, like cost, as opposed to anything like personal. There's so much more that something's worth other than just its monetary value, like a police uniform. But it's a, it's a silk shirt that he traded it for, so it's perfectly fair. Or several loaves of bread for staying in a house for a night. Like... Over the course of your ownership of a house, it's probably worth the same amount as like several loaves of bread for a night. If you really want to break down like the cost over time kind of deal. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm sure that's not a perfect example, but his his code here is so strict in a very, very funny way that feels like a joke. But I don't think it is. 
I don't think it is either. I think there are two components to this, right? So one is that Wayne feels like your average thief character that's been like had his he's intentionally cuffed his own hands to present himself from prevent himself from being a thief which makes him more interesting because he's restricted and so he is forced into the situation where the only thing that he can do is trade and the trades are a ton of fun i keep the heat is making me hiccup so i'm like trying to cover hiccups so that it doesn't happen in the microphone all the time so it, it makes him very fun, and I think that it's all of these trades are based on his perceived value, like what he believes his own perception of the value of this thing is. So there, there are a number of trades where it's like, like you had mentioned, like the loaves of bread for a place to stay. That is likely not actually worth it, but the person likes enough, and Wayne likes the trade enough where he's like, "Good, sweet, we're even. You agree, I agree, we're good." But- Later, other information is traded, and like. There's a lot of those trades that just kind of go on. The loaf of bread for a place to stay thing is not quite agreed upon because the person doesn't know he's staying there. They're gone. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or so I, what I mean, was it? There, there was later on, it's his gun or one of one of Renette's guns for something. Regardless. Yes. I mean, it's a great <laughs> example. But like, do they value the gun the same way that they value those documents? No, but it's based on his perception. Like, that mm. seems like a great trade. <laughs> And and that's kind of the fun thing with Wayne is like he's got this point of view and this perspective that is so shockingly different and yet at the same time like adherent to the rules of the world that I really love. It's it's this weird going to like our our alignment matrix like we like to do with our characters. Mm -hmm. I can't tell if he's lawful neutral or chaotic good. I think he's chaotic good. But he he has a very strict. Like, but he has a code code yeah. that he has to follow. That's why that pyramid isn't, or that not pyramid. No, that like, square isn't perfect. I know. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's. I think it's lawful neutral is really what he is. Probably, if you were to break it down. But you need like a lawful chaotic somehow. Hmm. Right. Yeah, that would be more. Mm-hmm. More in scope is attaching chaotic to lawful and then to neutral. Even mostly good. Like, that's the other problem is like he's doing most of this benevolently without meaningful intent to harm anyone else, which makes him align with good more than it does anything else. And he's not out for personal gain for the most part. Right. Or at all that we've seen. Yeah, definitely. With that, we move into chapter nine. We open this chapter flipping back to Wax and Marisi, having a conversation about the philosophy of the words of founding and additional medals associated with Allomancy. Wax links law keeping and philosophy. And I think his progenitor, Breeze, would be rolling in his grave if he heard this coming from his spawn. He's, you know, he was never <laughs> one to wax on about a whole lot, mm. but mm. here fucking wax is. Ha. Ah. it's probably true though like that's definitely true i do appreciate the philosophy here i think that's something that we've been missing a little bit even in the last couple books like the last book of i don't know really since mistborn we got a lot of it from from ham but that started to fall off oh we got some i don't know i don't know it's been missing i've been missing it regardless Mm -hmm. of how long ago it's been i do find it intriguing i think of the the existence of additional metals being considered a philosophy and a philosophical conversation as opposed to a scientific one or a straight up allomantic one or that that brings it back to 
kind of the age of early philosophy being kind of in place of early science or blooming into early science in that respect, as far as like hard sciences go. Yeah. Yeah. It's when it starts to become a little bit more firm. And I think that gets into something that I wanted to mention here. Maracy brings up inside of this chapter, broken windows theory, which is the, the theory and the idea that if you raise in areas basically value by ensuring that none of the windows are broken by improving parks and things like that around it by painting kind of a better picture of the community there there's less likely to be crime and theft and i appreciate its inclusion because i think it does like you're saying there's like a timely merit to it where it feels like it's right for the time that this culture and community is in they're in the first 300 years they don't have everything figured out they can't have everything figured out of being like a full-blown society but there are like a lot of large issues with broken window theory including like erasing culture classism issues probably being the biggest two but mm-hmm. that said like this is a this is a a culture and a nation and a world that needs to figure these things out and this is just one of those many stepping stones to do so yeah and i think that's more of a problem with being able to test that theory because that theory exists so so effectively in a vacuum but not so much in the real world where like neighborhoods have different properties to them you can't just say like all things considered this is exactly the same except for the state of our windows like that that just isn't effectively tested in reality at all there is something variables all over the place yeah yeah exactly there is something that she said that i found kind of egregious and that's to do with the conversation like there's a one line in there where she says something along the lines of being in a destitute place can make an otherwise good person into somebody into a criminal and i don't think that works even in her understanding of this theory i think that was a little bit too black and white and too like extreme for what she was talking about. Whereas like it should have been something like will embolden somebody with criminal tendencies to act upon them more often. Like as opposed to just saying like this environment makes you a bad person. Yeah. And I think that gets into kind of a a larger part of this conversation that I think makes for this interesting philosophical topic. You're you're totally right. And I think that that is a great example of the extremism that Marisi holds. And it makes for a good sort of pulls between the two. I want to I want to pull a little quote here. So Wax and her are kind of disagreeing about the the basis of humanity and saying that most people seem basically good. She comes back saying, well, perhaps by one definition, but it seems that either one, good or evil, has to be pursued for it to be significant. People today, it seems they are good or sometimes evil, mostly by inertia, not by choice. They act as their surroundings prepare them to act. While a great, quote, observation and one that you might expect from someone of youth and kind of schooling and knowledge, I think it also leads to kind of dichotomous poles like we're talking about between these characters in philosophies. You've got your realist in the form of wax and you've got your extremist in the form of mirror, which I think speaks to exactly what you're saying, which is that, like, you can absolutely escape circumstances and she doesn't have any sort of I don't want to say she doesn't have tolerance, but from what she said, it doesn't seem like she has as much tolerance for other opinions in that way it's it seems like a very naive thing for a a younger character to say yeah but at the same time i think there is some 
truth to what she's saying, especially within the context of what she's talking about, because she's talking about yes. like these anomalies and these serial killers. Deviations. That, yeah. The deviations that mm-hmm. she's talking about, the serial killer that came out of nowhere. I get what she's talking about in that respect, but I also like mm-hmm. making it more generalized was probably more of a mistake than what she was expecting yeah. it to be. I think that's a mistake of youth. Totally. Yeah. And of kind of, being sheltered from the reality of things while studying them very specifically and in probably one point of view alone from a textbook. But what I took away from this little section, I genuinely would not have taken wax to be a total optimist in that respect. As far as humanity goes. Yeah. I, I would have guessed him to be a little bit more jaded and a little bit more, clubs like honestly like i if we want to compare them to previous characters this puts him more in line with ham in that way where it feels like he's more like ham was generally speaking more people are good than bad Mm -hmm. and clubs definitely had like a sour outlook on people for a very long time despite being you know like an artisan and a refined person we love clubs but i love clubs still those two yeah i love clubs too but still i agree with you i think that this Oh, no, no, no. I, di- I didn't think it was a dig on clubs either. I was trying to clarify that I feel like I think it lines up a little bit more like this realigns us from like thinking that he's kind of more clubs like to actually believing in some innate good in a lot of people. So, folks at home, this cocktail, very good. Do not drink if you have to talk a bunch because what the fuck is this? I hate it. Oh my God, it's I, I love it. I it, I think that this is delicious. This is a, a perfect spin on a Bloody Mary. Fucking me up. Okay, though, to get to kind of what we were saying, I also want to mention that I think that there's something to what she's saying about people get locked into inertia more often than not. And she uses it a little bit too much on the polls like that's that's the naivete i think coming in but i think that people do get locked into inertia being either generally good generally bad extremely bad extremely good i think that that's a very real thing and I, in all honesty i truly think up until this point this is my favorite philosophical extraction of brandon's from any of the books so far there hasn't been a ton of philosophical ex- extractions right. from him. not not real like you know yeah and I, I don't I don't think it's explicitly wrong to say in in general. It's just over applied. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I, I think that's naivete coming into the, hmm. the mix, like we were saying. Yeah. Like yeah. I've been saying. I love it. Like you said, I think this is a great chapter. I think this feeds into exactly like this is the philosophy that we've been missing, kind of a deep, a deep sense. To me, in our conversations, it's a deep sense that we've been missing since Red Rising. But that's true. <laughs> yeah. Like we've we've talked about like a lot of a lot of era one has philosophy in it in quotes, but it's very surface level, top level stuff. Yeah. It, I, this I actually would, digs. I didn't quite understand for the most part the strict like attribute of philosopher when when talking about ham. He was the the closest we had to it, but it really wasn't that strong of a trait of his. I think it's just how the writing has grown, right? Like that's a huge component mm. of what's happened here. So, and that's that's why, again, I, I think I've mentioned this a couple of times. I read the first era, liked it. I was like, okay, we can cover it. And then I was like, all right, I'll pick up era two and like see what the rest is about. And this is where I was like, okay, I think we have to cover it. And this is what committed me to the rest of 
reading the rest of Moran's works, and I was like, okay, I can see it. I can commit to more than six months of like reading, you know, a trilogy or eight months or whatever it took us. So yeah. I was like, I'm I'm down. And this this was the book that convinced me and broke my back and like made me go, all right, there's more to this than at the very least the original trilogy. So right. I, I really appreciate the note of characterization we get about Marisi actually enjoying being a city girl and not feeling the need to follow in someone like the Ascendant Warrior's footsteps. It's a small note, but it's a good one, especially considering we've had the whole debate about the dress. We've had all of those conversations about like what makes you you. And it feels like Marisi is much more solidly her than, you know, Vin was put together at the time. While I can agree with you, I do think that it skirts a little bit of a line. With this writing for Brandon, Mr. Brander, he seems to be using Marisi as a tool a little bit to give us some additional historical context like we would have gotten from the logbooks in almost a an out of place, rambling, nervous character talking about all these historical like notes and things that she's read about Wayne and Wax or about different like the way the world works right now. And ultimately I think it's going to be a good starting point for seeing her arc and seeing how she grows much like we saw Vin grow, grow to enjoy these. Like we've talked a lot about Vin's arc. So like it's a good place to start for Marisi, but at the same time, I feel like it's almost a crutch that like Brandon is using to not use a logbook. Like it's his kind of, transition point it okay so i can i can see your info dump and i'll raise you at the very least that this is also an introduction point to people for the series right like each of these eras in their own right you don't want you're less likely so in the book selling industry if you sequelize something you're less each sequel sells less and less and less because you have to carry people over from book to book to book that's very typical it's very unusual that your last book sells more than your first book ever because you have fall off at different points so i think it's really smart of brandon to at the very least try to incorporate these things however it also can feel a little dumpy like you're saying where it's just like it's it's here to explain something that is in the past and in our previous reading it would have been explained in something like a logbook give us but the, i think it's his way give us snippets avoiding. from the history book that she was reading yeah but <laughs> give I, me more logbooks i want more logbooks crossland i know you I hated think... them <laughs> I think logbooks are a little bit lazy. Uh, That's fine. From a writing perspective. I liked them. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they're a little too direct. They're very they're it was it was fine. I don't I don't have that many complaints about them. But I, I think that in the end, especially as you read more and more things, it's like, oh, this is an undeft way of giving us information. That said, what Brandon did do that's very incredible with the logbooks is he often deceived us with them which was the play that I think makes the logbooks better in the end is that they mm-hmm. were a tool for deception that seemed to be giving us enlightenment. Now so. think about a historical textbook talking about this amazing like, heroic lawman, and then getting, getting to see him actually act and not be the like perfect example of a law person that he's like made out to be in the, in the historic, in the history book. That's, Fair. That would work better. Which is effectively uh, what we're getting. Not... But we're getting it through Marisi. Right. And and that gives that gives perspective. That means that we can talk about her as a character being naive. And we can talk about like 
some of those things. I, I just think that often intratextual bits, if they're not directly incorporated into like a character reading them in the narrative, can be bad. If it doesn't immediate like this comes from a lot of reading. And it even comes from like understanding the Lord of the Rings, right? Like the Lord of the Rings, you get context at the end if you read the appendices. You don't jump to the appendices in the middle, which is what Brandon does. Mm-hmm. in the form of the logbooks, right? That's fair. So it does fill out the world and it does expand on things. And it's like, oh, this is a great text. It informs and we understand things. But you do occasionally get in the Lord of the Rings the songs that they're singing and the poems that they might be reading and like the ways that they entertain themselves while they're traveling across the world. And so you get these breaks that feel natural because it's the characters doing them. And that's what I don't like about the logbooks is it's not the characters actively doing or committing the thing or doing the thing or reading the thing. That's my issue. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It, I'd still like them. It's just, you know, I don't prefer them. In this case, this just feels more like an, an abstraction of an abstraction of the truth. That's fair. Anyway. Yeah. It's fine. It's a, it's a good side note. But yeah. So. Wayne returns and brings information, claiming sarcastically to Marisy that he acquired it with whiskey and magic. That's for sure a drink. Like, we have to drink to whiskey and magic. There's no way we can't. He also helps replenish his stores of Ben Alloy's payment from Wax when Tiome walks in. Not Teleme. Tiome. <laughs> <laughs> that said, we got it. I know that people in our Discord were talking about this. I hate it. I hate, I hate this... This is the most bullshit French-English interpretation, and if you know anything about me, you know that I hate the French language. I hate it. I despise it. I think that it's bullshit. I think that there's a lot of problems. What do you hate more, the French language or the French people? The language. (laughs) The language influences the people. I'm trying to trap you. The snobbery of the language. (laughs) No, I I just, I, I have this natural distaste in my mouth. It's not that I hate it or anything like that. I'm not that aggressive. On air. On air. Yeah, no, I definitely <laughs> broke up with a girl once over the fact that she loved the French so much. Just kidding. Kind of. That said, I think that this explanation is bullshit as far as like the like, could you ever land on the way T.O.M. from the way that this is spelled in no. English? No, no way. Tell him you <laughs> tell him you tell him a like tell him a at the very least feels like it gives it the the flourish that you're looking for. I'm going to start calling him tell him or do just because. It's whiskey. <laughs> and fair point. Um, Closer. <laughs> anyway, we'll give him TM. We'll yeah. give him TM. So I'll I'll say it the way that the audiobook does because at the very least I can admit fault. TM makes tea. TM makes tea. That is the that is the clarification that I, I appreciate. And it's like, okay, at the very least I can match up the name with the characteristic. It might be a little bit too direct whatever tea murderer <laughs> tea, tea terrorist, terrorist. <laughs> yeah <true. laughs> tea terrorist <laughs> so to that point he gives some tea to wax while the three crew members begin to work out their steps wayne picks up the single poured cup of tea and drinks it he finds it to be poisoned uh tea home then lowers a gun at wax and fires wax quickly drops the butler and his final move goes off exploding the basket forcing our crew down through the floor after a couple of quick quips from wayne and wax a about wax's history with bombs okay which is a funny joke throughout this entire point up until this point he's like things seem to explode around wax and yep. it's like fucking the basket explodes that's true you told me ahead of time that you were trying to keep this to five mm-hmm. questions plus a short one per 
chapter. That doesn't work if you I've just don't you put a space between like four questions or four comments. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most I've seen you write for anything ever in, in a note. It's literally two paragraphs to address a paragraph, but fair point. I mean, it's three, but... <laughs> So, I really appreciated the whiskey and magic comment, and it made me think, considering that this, like, magic isn't just a saying in this world, magic is a thing, and he was literally, Mm -hmm. literally using whiskey and magic to conduct, like, that wasn't a joke. It was maybe oversimplified, but it wasn't a joke. I do have a follow-up question before we continue down this too far. With... As we perceive it, a magic system, is it not science to them to some degree? Oh, good point. Like, that's that's kind of how I how I read that comment a little bit. It's that's like fair. Magic is a little bit more like finger wavy. Elmancy is critical to what he does, but that means that it's kind of Brandon's but, fault for incorporating and calling it magic. So, like, I, I think I'm still with you on the net point. Yeah. But, oh, I hadn't even considered that, that they wouldn't. They, this is such a hard thing. That it's, it's science. not, it's, it is a science. Interesting. Okay. Good clarification. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like truly. Hmm. Yeah. Never mind. It's whiskey and magic. <laughs> I think it's still, I, I think I, I think I'm still with you on the whole point though, because it, I, I think I saw it on the other side of it, which is like, why would you call it magic if you know that it's science? Cause that's kind of what he's pointing at. Like, I think, but I don't think he's actually the sarcasm. About, I don't know. I don't think he's talking about his bendo alloy. When he's talking about this, he, he might be he's, talking about the disguises then in the acting. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I didn't mean to shut you down. It was no, just, no, no, it's, no. It's, it's a serious perfect. thought that I have inside of these books is it's like it is it becomes such a hard magic system that it's less like magic. It's more like science. Like it's it is so strict that it is as you it know, should. the flexibility is almost gone. I love it as it should be. Fuck you. Soft magics are great. You love the Lord of the Rings. Don't, don't get it with this. I know. I do. That's true. You're fine. Like, it's fine. I like this more. Fuck you. I like this system more. It's There isn't a system to... Fuck you. All right. Anyway, continue. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm halfway through this, by the way. Every time I take a sip, sip I can't help but stutter yeah. every single time. Because there's like... <laughs> All my salivary glands activate and start breathing fire at me. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So the conversation within the speed bubble where the explosion's going off felt a little bit clunky, specifically on my first read through of it. Less so on my like subsequent reads because I knew it was coming and I knew how like how we were getting through things. But it felt weirdly clunky because of like the interactions between Wax and Marisi specifically. Because Marisi is obviously like very understandably freaking out about this like explosion that she's like staring at in a terrifying way. I can't even imagine being in that scenario. And while Wax and Wayne are just like kind of arguing and bouncing ideas back and forth and like being sarcastic with one another and like trying to figure out how to do this, he's also like stopping and explaining how bend alloy works in like a way that maybe that's in character and maybe that's understandable that like, he's just not even like worried about what's happening outside of it, but he is a little bit and it it just feels not quite there. I don't, I don't know the better way to explain it. It felt a little forced 
I think it does feel forced. I totally agree with you. I think it's because Brandon in the first seven chapters of this book set a very different expectation for abilities and explanations and how things happen. And this is like a breaking of an internal canons of probability of what you expect from the story so far. So it's like we've heard all these tones and voices and things and we've we've even seen some things explained internally from Wax's monologue. Generally single lines. The fact that he's going through this explanation verbally totally agree with you it does feel out of place i think it's because of our expectations of what we expect from our characters what what expectation is being broken here so they don't need like everyone know especially marisi knows a lot about the functions of alamancy and as they've been explained to us up until this point it's been in single sentences it's been in brief explanations it's all been internal monologue so now it feels almost fourth wall where it's talking to the audience more directly to explain to a character that we know to be knowledgeable and especially later we know that she understands more than she's letting on. Yeah. Well, there's that, but I didn't, I didn't get the feeling that like this gave any new information. Like I felt like this was a three time repeat of the same information that we've known. We knew that the speed bubble couldn't be moved. We knew it didn't stop time, but slowed it down explicitly. Like, I don't understand why he had to talk to the audience here. Well, that's what I'm I think it's just a repeat. I think Sanderson has a tendency to repeat things to make sure that you understand them. I think that this one is a defiance of those expectations, though, because it's done out loud to character, intra character, if that makes sense. Like that's that's the error issue. I believe that Marisi probably hasn't had this experience of being in a bend alloy bubble as we learn that it's it's as rare as all the other elementic abilities are. But so it's unlikely that she's experienced it, but she's not confused by it either. Like she's she's not even acting confused. She's just like giving warning, like, hey, it's getting really close now. We should we gotta do something. Yeah. Is more right. the, the vibe is, that I got off of it. But maybe that's yeah, not what well, yeah. I, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I think that it that's some of the rationale here is that like re explain something to make sure that it's clear. I don't need it, Brandon. I I got it twice. <laughs> like you you don't need to explain it. And especially this character gets it. Like that's mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. To if, if he's looking to preserve pace, to me, this is an edit. But regardless, it's not that big of a good point. Yeah. How'd you feel about the butler betrayal, though? We, we were talking what pretty high on TM. Dick. Yeah. What an absolute dick trying to kill our dear friends like that. <laughs> uh-huh. It, we called him Alfred last week. We did. And that <laughs> truly feels more like Wayne or with like Wax now. Wax feels more like Alfred to Wayne. Based on this mm. section, because he's getting all okay. of his information on how to conduct his like schemey business through wax, it, like it, textually, like he got all of these like understandings of the schematics and understandings of how the police were functioning. And like he's getting all these documents and like information from oh, wax. Wayne's doing the bad Wayne's doing yeah. Wayne. It, Bruce Wayne is going about. <laughs> <laughs> how did we make that joke last week that's perfect you're right (laughs) like that's the feeling like i had that real like that not realization but like that thought while i was reading this week was Hmm. wax feels like alfred that's funny that's good from from wayne's perspective at least Mm -hmm. right totally and from the presentation of information it, it totally mirrors that matches that I get it. Mm-hmm. Of course, after TM's bond, at, oh my god! 
Of course, after TM's bomb, everyone is found to be okay in the end. There is, however, a lingering question that Wax poses. Who is TM working for? How is he able to be pulled between and over to the other side so quickly? What are your thoughts on the subject? So Tiom was in his uncle's employ when he was killed. Mm-hmm. And presumably, I think it makes sense that he was kind of... There's some weirdness here, given like our conversations that we have with the suit through Miles's perspective. It feels like a play to get to wax directly but the suit doesn't seem to think that's the case i don't know about that i don't know how it all works but (laughs) sure tium seems to have been a plant from the start but it's giving me chondra vibes Mm. tium gave me chondra vibes and it's not just because he was like a servant i don't know like i guess we never really had a chondra's act as servants but like we never had one pretending to be a servant we had Lord Renew, and we had the dog. That was pretty much it. Kelsier intermittently, but yeah. And yeah, and Kelsier. But they were enslaved people to a certain extent. Not, not enslaved, but under contract serving somebody. They, they had a master to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Right. I would go so far as to say indentured <clears throat> servitude at the very least. Yeah. yeah. Something a little bit more. It rides that line. It rides that line. It's they're being paid. Mm -hmm. They have a contract, (laughs) but it's more oppressive than business. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's, it's definitely a more binding contract. There's a couple of interesting things here that I do want to bring up in, in your thoughts with the Chondra and talking about suit, the suit, Mr. Suit miles and the like, as far as it goes, have you, you don't, need to necessarily but have you read any of the interstitial pages the broadsheet pages that have come up i haven't okay so there have been two or three i'll just kind of let you know but one of the bits that's in one of them is and this is why i think it'll benefit you in the next books when they're actually read aloud because you'll hear them and we'll we'll try to figure out how to piece that into episodes as we go where where they're heard but in the very first one, there's just a little ad that's taken out with like a glowing face and some or like a big face and some glowing eyes. And it mm-hmm. says, have you seen the faceless strangers? And or fa- I think it's faceless strangers. It's something like that. It's very similar. And okay. it seems to be alluding to Chandra. As we knew Chandra, though, all of them killed themselves. At the but end they don't of the die. Last book. <laughs> they turn into misrates. They turn right? into like and we, we, yeah. we don't know what happens after that. It's totally possible. We know yeah. that like humanity wouldn't be able to like just stick some spikes back into them and they'd be good to go. But Sazed has the power to do that. Right. And look, I'm, the I'm only not, reason yeah. I say we don't, we know humanity wouldn't be able to do that is through context that the Lord ruler, after giving up the power of, of preservation tried and failed and was only able to create those three creatures mm-hmm. or three, three beings, three entities while he was holding the power and not afterwards. Yeah. Presumably that means mm. because it was because of the infinite like possibilities of where and how to spike, spike them. Yes. Yes, definitely. Right. But I guess once you know yes. where to spike a Chandra, you know, that was, that was the clarification. Yeah. That was the clarification that I was going to make between the two is once you but know, no, nobody, is nobody has except says it like you're saying, except says or except yeah. the Lord ruler. And now, says it knows how to do it mm-hmm. so yeah, totally vin could have done it in like an 
off page little jaunt like oh here you go 10 how would you feel about that if she did it off page though it'd be weird considering how present she was in the battle but we also know from from like we know for a fact that she's able to do a ton at once and ruin was able to do a ton at once i think it'd be a reasonable way to go back and like write something into it because there was no way to resolve that in that book it would have just been a thread hanging there and we would have been i would have been more upset about her doing that and not doing anything with it Hmm. okay i think that tracks that tracks totally get it i do want to move back from the conjure conversation back to tm just for a second just to address kind of what you said about the idea of tm so you think that tm is a conjure the one thing that I wanted to pose about the idea of him being a conjurer is Dres wouldn't be that affected by bullets and wounds and things like that. Like we know that they can be battered away and harmed by things, but to mm. the degree that he is like bleeding and dying is a little bit different than as we understand Condra to be. That's true. And there's a trail of blood and I don't think they bleed. Oh, they're called faceless immortals. I said it. I said it wrong like three or four times. Faceless immortals is the advertisement. Sorry. That's okay. what it is. If I would have read that, I totally would have said, oh, Condra exists still. Cool. Awesome. (laughs) It's it's like a got milk ad. Like, it's like, have you seen a faceless immortal? And it's got like the eyes. It's Mm. totally got milky. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Because they don't really bleed like people do. Right? No. Right. Yeah. And there's explicitly a trail of blood to the doorframe. Right. They're not harmed in the same way, at the very least. They okay, can maybe fake it, but yeah. But why do that and then immediately suicide yourself? Right, right, exactly, with a bomb. Yeah. And would that even suicide you? That's the other question. Like, what kills a chondra? So far as we know, like, the acid was the way to kill a chondra, dissolving everything. I guess putting so. all the different parts in different places? Separating the <laughs> spikes, maybe even. Like, actually, like, separating the spikes would turn... Maybe two halves of you into two separate miss rates. Like if you like thinking about like an amoeba almost like splitting, yeah. you separate the spikes. It's like two miss rates then at that point. But then you'd be dealing with two blobs on the floor and you would know that you have two blobs on the floor. <laughs> right. It feels like but there, there so. is that sort of thread dangled there, like finding Tiom's body if there's anything left to find. And I know that's not what he was talking about like in context, but right. Yeah. Anyway. Eh, yeah. Fair enough. It, it does. It does raise a question. It All just right. for whatever reason, the whole thing felt Condra ish. I don't Condra adjacent. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary, but we know that maybe it, uh, I don't know. I don't know why it feels that way to me, but it does. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for it. So we go into chapter 10 here. Our crew heads towards the fifth octant and we're back in Marisi's perspective. We got a lot of description of the city as we head out on one of the spokes to get into the center and then work our way back out from there. It leads to a very rustic feel as we go from kind of these sort of, I don't want to call them dingy necessarily, but like we move from how I would imagine a rustic city during this time period feels like 1800s London almost into this inner sanctum that almost opens up and feels like Eden. Like it, it has this bright glowing feel about it. And it's, it's very different, especially considering we've got the tomb that we know is like of the ascended warrior and the Lord. Like this is very clearly a lot of 
Spook and says it's handprints all over the place on this, especially since for the most part, our depiction of the city has been one of nighttime. It really brings to life this idea of the city that they've built that are Harmony and our Lord Mistborn have built to honor their friends and the crew in the long term. I mean, so many things, like we said before, are named after those those people in those groups. And of course, the mare wheel of flowers that she brings up, mm. named after the survivor's late wife. I smiled so brightly <laughs> at the yeah. mare wheel flowers. I really did. It's a great way to honor Mare. Like you mentioned, Sazed and Spook's handprints are all over here, and like they did an amazing job. It's it's just so fascinating because it's like it's truly it's this circular city. Again, have you looked at the map of this? No, but I've got this right here. Front of the book. It's a circular city, right? And so it's very intelligently laid out. That's why we ride in on like spokes and we've got this whole thing in a wheel. But it's it's so intelligently laid out and designed that I love the idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? The Ellendale Basin. Mm-hmm. Meant to be like a, a fertile crescent of sorts, designed to be this home in this hub. I, I just really, I really enjoy its depiction and the way that it's described as we're moving through the whole thing. I think it's great. Yeah. So much pepper in my mouth. Okay. We get a conversation between Marisi and Wax as well to discuss Wax's uncle's death. And it's tragic. The family between Wax's uncle Edward, his aunt, Edward's wife, his sister, and the recent tragedy of his cousin's death before that, it layers on this cloak of death onto this family tree leaving Wax as one of the last surviving vestiges of Breeze's legacy, so far as we're aware, it feels like. What a sad story to like lose all of these people this way so quickly in succession to land on Wax. Yeah, he's got a stone-like sort of disposition throughout this whole thing, this commentary, and glares at Wayne based on like different comments. He's He's confronted with this idea that it's not that it wasn't an accident and his reaction proves that it really has affected him significantly. Even when he was doing his best to just believe, believe the paperwork, believe the reports. And he's, he's trying his best to be this kind of stalwart lawman and like the disposition that he's built for himself. But like it, it, he's, he's rocked by it quite a bit. It feels like, yeah, he's he's definitely off level, especially considering, you know, his uncle and his sister, I think, feel like the most impactful, especially since this was a wish of his aunt. So it's like the cousin's death before he almost kind of glances over like the cousin's death. He's he gets and he understands, but it's the rest of the family in that sort of mass incident that they lose all of them. That feels like he like you said, is just very cold to this entire reaction and he it's not that he's indifferent to it by any means. It's not that stretch of cold. It's more that like he's had to harden himself to pre- prevent himself from feeling those feelings because he was gone. He very well could have been in that same bus if he would have been in town. Mm-hmm. You know, not that he's making that assumption, but feels like it. Yeah. Or survivor, like survivor's guilt or wishing he was there to save them somehow. Do or something. Do yeah. something. Yeah. There's a little note here about Renette. And a lot of wonderful banter between our group here in the carriage. But they eventually arrive at the Vanisher's hideout and manage to disengage a lot of the traps that were in place. They manage to inspect it to find copper and aluminum residue and other deviations, as they've mentioned before, that they're looking for. 
all over the place. They find a number of things. I think one of the most important is a cigar box, of course, that was previously filled with ex- very expensive cigars, as well as some nudie magazines and photos. This scene is a scene that I think I will get later. Like, this feels just like a ton of information that's only half, like, it only half makes sense to me right now. Like, I can't latch on to much or make make much of anything. The carriage driver feels off, even. Like, everything feels like this is a dump of information that isn't immediately relevant, but will be at some point soon. Maybe. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I think entirely this is meant to like skirt that line in a lot of different ways. I, I think it's meant to be encouraging to the mystery, right? In in a couple of big ways to like make you think about the different sort of mysterious elements that are going on and give you pieces that later you can look back on and be like, oh man, I should have put that together. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to make you like take that and try to scrutinize everything so much, but this is very much like a, a scene that's meant to lend to that mystery and intrigue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially, you know, the three combinations of things, the carriage driver, the cigars and the nudie magazines. Wax's jokes about the magazines are fucking hilarious. Mm -hmm. It's it's great. But that said, there's a lot to unpack here as far as Wayne's backstory goes. It's really unfortunate, but at the same time, uplifting to hear as he's he's walked this path of this reformed criminal who did something absolutely terrible in the form of killing this father to rob him and making mistake. But he's also constantly seeking redemption, and I I really enjoy that. I really – I like the idea that a character could do something so horrific that they could potentially redeem themselves through story, and they could, like, work it out and become a better character and, like, make their way Hmm. through something horrific. Yeah. Maybe, like, I don't know. Like, any character that has a fucking redemption arc branded – God damn it, I'm still angry about the intentionally blank episode. This is me exercising a demon. If you want to hear that, it's in a devil's cut. I went on a bit of a rant after an episode. For the first time ever, we recorded a devil's cut after an episode, which was enough to give you context on <laughs> how bad my brain was about that. Yeah, yeah. we re- usually record like a half hour before just to get warmed up and talk about different stuff. Cross gets on. He's like, man, I'm angry. I want to talk about this for a devil's cut. But I'm going to be so pissed off by the end of it that I don't want to do it before we record. I'll be in such a bad yeah. place. Like, so we just right, hopped into cool. the episode. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I, rec- I recommend that one greatly because, man, I've never been driven up so far up a tree. As far as a writer's opinion goes about the craft, like writers have shitty opinions all the time, do shitty things, etc. This one being craft driven pissed me off. It was good. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. I enjoyed the the leverage to rant about it. Anyway, the point being, Brandon has this character that is seeking absolution for something that he did really wrong. And he knows that maybe he can't make up for it in the eyes of the people that he harmed. And I think that's what's actually really great about this is I think a lot of authors would have given easy and natural forgiveness from the people that were wronged. And the fact that the kids... He writes letters to the kids, but they still fucking hate him, despite him paying for all of these things and sending money and everything else is it's heart wrenching in a completely different way. I it man, it's complex. Yeah. It's great. It gives Wayne it's crazy a lot. that someone who could hold such a harsh opinion about redemption arcs could write such a great idea of a redemption arc. Yeah. Oh, I'm angry about it again. Just right. kidding. I'm trying not to be. 
it obviously gives Wayne a lot of personality and backups to his personality, specifically his dislike for guns. I guess he's kind of putting up a front for the most part when he's talking about guns and bullets and his dislike for them, but he's, he's posing it comically, but also in like a confused way. And I don't know if that's just a, like an act to soften the blow, but he doesn't display disgust for them or a fear of them or traumatization over them. It's, it's confusion and confoundness as it's described a couple different times, I think like confoundedness. And I, I don't know if he's doing it for himself or for other people, but it, it seems counter to what we learn about him here. I think he's kind of doing it in combination a little bit to delude himself of what he'd done and kind of like make a, make a comedic moment of it all. But this is also why I wanted to point it out last week that he was so specific about using dueling canes and how wax also mentioned that he was so bad at using guns and making such a specific point because his backstory is so derived from this fact that he is the bottom of this was so fucking spicy. So I'm trying to talk quick so I don't die. So he's, he's trying to unpack his trauma with comedy. And I mean that to me, engrosses Wayne's character is trauma through comedy or comedy through trauma, whichever way you want to spin that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can buy that. It just felt like mis- it, it felt misdirectiony a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cause he was trying to be funny about it. He's like, I'm so bad with guns and like, but it's, I think it's, wax not, it's like, not that it's not, I'm bad with guns. It's, it's wax talking about how he's confused by guns. That's true. That actually does. I do agree with that. That does feel like a little bit of an inconsistency. If it were purely from Wayne, it feels like he's making a joke of it. From Wax, it sounds like an incompetence, which is different. It's it's a Wayne is incompetent with guns as we understand, but that's because of a traumatizing event. So mm-hmm. like and it's is a, it because of the close a, friends that they feel like they can make fun of this? Like that's maybe, maybe. or or he was yeah. asked to not bring it up to anybody and just treat it like I'm confused. Like, hey, let's not talk about it. Treat it this way, even when somebody else new comes in. I could see that being the case. They are really close, but we do know that he wouldn't be able to shoot properly because he contextually, nope, that's 16. That's in 16. Never mind. Where his hands shaking. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, no, actually. That's true beforehand. They do talk about his handshaking every time he's holding a gun or looking at a gun. Wax actually makes that comment that he can't stop shaking. There's also physical commentary of him holding a gun in 16. It's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. There's the comments about bullets bouncing and like the, oh, why would they do that? Like, yeah, there's some inconsistencies there. And it's probably fine. (laughs) I yeah, I think it's all POV driven and meant to be like meant to be something to lead you into Wayne's perspective and like try to get you to think about where he is and then landing here and being like, oh, my closest friend turns this into a joke to try to not make me feel like a piece of shit. And like, I I think that's what Wax is doing in those moments is like turning it into a joke to try to help him out and be like, you're bad at this. That's okay. And you've got ways around it. That's cool. But for him, I think deeply personally, he can turn it into a joke, but at the same time, very clearly in the way that he feels about the the kids of that father, yeah. he cares quite a bit. Yep. And so 
I think that haunts him in the same like we've got two people that have different forms of PTSD. One we saw immediately on screen in the form of wax killing Lessie on accident with a gun. And then the second being Wayne through indirect messaging. Both of them errors with guns, violence with guns, causing problems inside of their lives. Mm -hmm. Tough to be a lawman or a thief, I guess. And then a lawman. Wayne is so interesting that way. (laughs) But. We end this chapter by really beginning to unpack Miles' hundred lives, or Miles de Gautier, de Gautier, de Gautier, de de Gautier, whatever, (laughs) this chapter, French, French shit, after Wax returns and the chapter ends. So we get a little bit about the man. He's going to be fun. He's already a fun character to explore. We get a lot more of it throughout this section, but yeah. We do i think i just want to move into it so we can talk about him more because i think like in perspective we're gonna have more interesting things to say so we go into chapter 11 and we move over to miles point of view and let this be known this is really i think truly our first villainous antagonistic point of view marsh is a little wishy-washy as far as like his intentions go i guess we had like the very limited point of view of yeah that's exactly where i was going he yeah okay i guess but okay all right i'm wrong i'm wrong fair point but i think we get a lot more from these point of views than we do others i think that we outside of like straff maybe being the only other one this feels so deeply invested that i really appreciate yeah i I just threw another one onto the pile of characters that you mentioned yeah fuck me i guess (laughs) so i I really appreciate miles though because he feels the most into tiny things i mean he's a like deuter antagonist at best motherfucker but we meet miles as he's holding a lit cigar of which we can only assume is the very expensive kind hanging out over the railing surrounded by a couple of lieutenants tarson and clamps i don't know if tarson's actually a lieutenant but it it, i I mean as close he feels like the strong arm lieutenant maybe Mm -hmm. i don't know but He walks down the tunnel after passing on the pieces of information, talks with clamps about recruitment, and as such, gives us a peek into his leadership style. He's fairly reserved and cold for a leader of a crew like this, but more mature, I think, than a lot of other people. Like, he's got a moral code developed and and something there to him that feels very strict. I'd call it, like, lawful neutral. Like, he's not evil. There's, There's nothing that he's doing that's evil. He's working against a system that he finds oppressive. But even with confronted with the possibility of this being a setup between he and Wax, Miles carefully dismisses it and moves on, explaining his plans for reform and why that isn't the case. Yeah, I don't know if I'd even go as far as evil. Yeah, no, I, I don't think he's evil. Antagonistic, oh, y- evil. You, s- you said Two neutral. You said neutral. Yeah. Okay. I misheard you. Or I okay. started thinking, started my spiral. It's fine. It's fine. Right off the bat, though, we get this really complete... <laughs> character which is great it's awesome it's awesome to jump into somebody and immediately get fleshed out like this i'm really i'm really liking everything we're getting from him so far and that just gets better and better as we go yeah miles is fascinating for a branded perspective because i think that he we've I, I was just mentioning all the other villains i feel like he has a lot more than other ones do because he has a competing philosophy he's not the embodiment of an opposite evil but he is i think miles makes this comment in chapter 15 he's consumed by a single thought a single ideal 
and I think that's vengeance. I think is what he what he says. Even that, I feel like is a little bit too simplistic for what Miles is seeking. But I think that it does lend itself, like you're saying, to a, a more complete character because he isn't so one note or denoted evil or bad. Like he's so much more complex than that. Yeah. There is a little mention of Trell here, a remnant of a belief system from Era 1 that Sazed had, of course, preserved inside of the words of founding, finding it important. Trellism, Miles feels, points to him being special in his own head. I want to ask you, what thoughts do you have on Trellism having survived and then having people that believe in it in post? So Trellism was Mare's religion, yes? No, Trellism was the religion of the thousand eyes in the sky, the stars. Interesting. The God that looked down on them from the stars. Okay. Right. The navigation kind of deal. Yes, um, exactly. Yep. Okay. I guess it can be a self-centered kind of deal if you're if you take it that way to look at like look at all of these eyes looking at me. Why would they be looking at me? That might be a stretch. I don't know exactly how it goes, but I think in general, I'd like to explore the idea like how Trellism and how this religion and his own view of himself is interacting with his gold and how he is able to see himself. And there's questions of whether or not still there's still questions of whether or not it's a past self or an alternate self. So looking at Looking at all of that through that lens, I think will be interesting, but I'm really not sure what to take, like what to make of it right now and why that makes him special. He is special. Like clearly he's super special based on like his specific twin born capabilities and combination, but I don't know beyond that. Yeah, more to go, more to go there. I mean, especially at the end of the chapter, we get even a little, or at the end of the week, excuse me, we get even a little bit more on Trell. So we'll we'll circle back on this, but it's good to hear at the very least at this point, you're questioning the involvement of Trell and sort of the idea of these multiple religions. I mean, we've had, I think, five, four or five introduced at this point. Path, Survivorism, Sliverism, Trell, four. But I would like to pause it just based on this, like, meandering conversation i had with myself right there i'm assuming hoid has a similar twin born capability Mm. just based on the fact that he's still kicking okay and seems to be human got it okay so the fact that he's still alive 300 years later pitches something you can hear that's what we have as far as a function of how to survive that long so far other than be a chondra or a god so you can hear our brief conversation about Hoyd that we had again in the devil's cut. We did have a brief conversation about correcting a couple of pieces of information and adding a little bit of context to PJ's perspective about Hoyd in this book. It's in the devil's cut. Mm-hmm. Fucking Hoyd. So fucking Hoyd. <laughs> we are introduced to a new character here as our crew had anticipated. We have our backer, Mr. Suit, a tea sipping man, who has a vested interest in Miles's cause and the vanishers for his abductions that he needs to have accomplished. I find it interesting that even he thinks that the drama of the vanishers and the mask of Miles to be a little much. Both of them are confounded by Wax's involvement in this moment, in the situation. They need to find a way out of it. And Suit even puts some of the blame on Miles for forcing his hand to make Wax involved. What do you think of our new character and the combined assessment of Wax? I mean, 
he certainly seems like a noble in our traditional sense. Our pre, our Lord ruler, like pre era one. Yeah. Yeah. It's not much of a surprise in my book, given the wealth surrounding him, able to fund something like this and perceived selfishness and motivation. As far as wax goes in all of this, I don't fully like buy the surprise that Miles puts on for wax being around being involved and getting pulled into all this there seems to be a very pointed rivalry there like we get we get some context and understanding of how they know each other but there we don't get necessarily a falling out between them and there there's just some strange vendetta that i'm like keying into that this doesn't feel by chance yeah mr suit i think later on we get an understanding that he is part of an organization called the set the set set that's pretty fucking theatrical man who it's is definitely he a, to judge <laughs> it's a setup you know what i mean like it's it's a little like it's almost like too literal of a joke to like just piece in here but like come on man <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it, it, he's allowed to be theatrical but the vanishers aren't okay mm-hmm asshole (laughs) definitely i yeah it's it's interesting because it's almost illuminati-esque we'll talk about that a lot more later i think that's something that we should hold for that 15th chapter to discuss but yeah i mean there's more to come in in the form of mr suit and and miles interactions as they go we get a little bit of interlude and then we see the fallout of what happens here instead of the rest of the week so mm-hmm. this perspective ends with Miles and Suit hatching their own plan for an upcoming theft of an unrobable train and how best to deal with killing wax. I do want to mention, thank you, Brandon, for separating perspectives with the triple stars inside of the book. This is something that I think is really important to draw clarification points between perspectives more than just like a line break or something else, because it does create a delineation. I know that the editors know this. I know that obviously he knows this. I'm being a little bit condescending here, but in actuality, in the Hero of Ages, this was confounding when it didn't happen. To me, it felt like a writer mistake. It it felt strictly like a mistake. It's because I grew up reading Stephen King and he flips perspectives pretty often, but always with the triple star, with the triple asterisk to give you that idea that you're line breaking between people and characters. Yeah. So I'm glad it occurs up until then. Yeah. It felt so clearly written with like the cinematography in mind. Yes. In which that works because you are trying to as seamlessly as possible transition between these characters. So you can see everything all at once as if you're not in a first person, like trying to, trying to put a third person view on a story that's strictly written in first person. Is I think what well, he's trying is, to get get at in that in that final chunk of Hero of Ages, whereas this I, is better. I I think it's better, mm-hmm. but I understand what he was going for with not having. Yeah. It. They're both still third person, but I understand what you're saying. It's or, third person yeah, omniscient, not, third person yeah. limited. I get it. Don't need to say more than that. But yes, I understand what you're saying. I understand yeah. the differences. Misspoke. I, I totally. Apologize. I believe you do. Yeah. I well. I, <laughs> It's a, it's a newerish thing to brain. So, or, you know, it, I think it's something that you were probably taught earlier yeah. out, out of sight, just, out of mind, but it's not something that you experienced because you didn't read more than what you were yeah. told to read. 
Yeah, not that I didn't experience it, but I never pursued I it intellectually, it. whatever. Yeah, whatever way you want to put it. Yeah. So that said, though, I do appreciate how this ends, this perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like a heist film again, as opposed to the inverse of a heist film. This feels like a heist film. <laughs> <laughs> it, do, it does have that feeling like we we bounce back and forth between like western heist film western heist film western heist film and nothing wrong with that i i, I love it mm. i quite enjoy quite enjoy the perspective shifts yes so we hit go ahead no just okay we hit that triple asterisk and we move from <laughs> We move over to Wax talking about Miles and giving us an explainer on the power of compounding and really like defining it for us in a hard way that we hadn't had before. Since he's a double gold user, he's effectively immortal and able to almost never run out of health as a blood maker. I should say like immortal from damage, I guess is the way to put it. Like he's he's not age immortal, but he's he's immortal from invulnerable wounds. Yeah. Yes. Better. Which is. I think the distinction that we made with the Chandra before. But he's still vulnerable. Like, he can still be killed, in theory, but... Not as not a as gold easily. savant. Yeah. I don't know if he can. Right. Because I, I was thinking about this. Yeah. He okay. heals so quickly that as a bone breaks, it fuses back together. Like, it heals before it finishes breaking. Bones shatter. Like... Mm-hmm. That crack propagates not as fast as it does in glass, but very, very, very quickly, which would mean hypothetically, if somebody were to take a katana to his throat, like to his neck, it would like his neck would probably grow around it while he's getting his head chopped. Oh, that's so cool. Like, that's (laughs) such a cool visual. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I would think that would probably be the case. Like he can't be decapitated unless it's like a unless it's a big enough blade that it's not going through and like it completely severs the front and back of the neck before exiting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's not like it's going to regrow around the blade. Yeah, Yeah. I understand. (laughs) Imagine tendrils going around. (laughs) Yeah, it's not. That's not how it works. It's very Resident Evil, but I understand. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, this is getting... No, I get, I get it. That's, I mean, it's a good analysis, though. Yeah. So it's possible. I'm sure it's possible to to kill him in that way. Unlikely, but but, but very unlikely. Yeah. And yeah, it's a cool power. How did Vin kill the Lord Ruler? So she she this pushed. Is... She was able to like harness the mist and pushed out his gold metal mind. Is that what we're assuming happened? And then was able to kill him. This is the second point of clarification, which we really don't understand. We don't get this fully defined outside of the back end Ars Arcanum until now-ish, right? So I want to clarify this. This is something that Zypress brought up as well. He's like, you need to clarify this for PJ. But I don't think I needed to until we had context. Here we have context now. So gold does not make you immune to aging, as we learn from Miles' perspective. Just damage that your body might inflict upon itself or be inflicted upon you which is why as a compounder he appears very young he could be much older but he would still die at an extended human form of life like he might have an extra 20 or 30 years or so over an average human because he could heal some things that otherwise most people wouldn't be able to heal but he wouldn't be functionally immortal 
this is where we get into the Ars Arcanum, which is that the ferrochemical power of atium is to store age and being able to both burn and store and age gold. compounded with gold. So gold, atium, and atium burning as compounding metals plus gold means that you could live forever. No one but the Lord Ruler and maybe some Inquisitors had access to atium spikes and that power. Okay. So the bracers that she pulls out in that moment, she doesn't know what they are, but they have to be ATM based on her understanding of the system. Gotcha. Does that check out? It does. Didn't they talk about it in this book, though? Didn't they talk about which one? This book. Didn't they no, talk I know, about I know, but living forever through double gold? No, 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 no. You can't live forever through double gold. I thought you, even you in still this section, die of I thought old they age. just talked about something You'll like that. You'll still die of old age. But they, they did. They specifically made it very clear that you cannot live forever. But you can live much longer because you're able to heal yourself and do other things. Like you can live yeah. an extended life, but you cannot live in permanent life as one might assume. Gotcha. So that's that's the biggest difference. Okay. Between the two. So it is, it is atium that allows for the perpetual life of which we know has been mostly depe- depleted. I, I think at one point this week, it's also referred to as the lost metal, which makes me very trepidatious for the new book, The Lost Metal, where I'm like, is there more atium out there? Are rules a little bit defined? That's purely speculation. Purely speculation. Could be mm. entirely incorrect. I don't want to. I don't want to necessarily put that out there. But the I concept of it being brought up here in this section that we're reading right now, and it being the title of the last book, makes me think that maybe there's some A team left in the world. I Secretly. never bought the idea that they had used literally all of the A team on the planet. Okay, I, I yeah. n- never bought that for a second. So I think they depleted a critical amount of it. I think it's entirely possible that there's small stockpiles here and there that are just completely hidden, hard to find, not intentionally hidden for like any specific purpose, but were like hoarded by different noble houses or thieving crews or what have you. And like there are small little pockets of it here and there. The fact that it's there's I think it would be just just to clarify, I think it would be purely in harvested nuggets. It would have been things that had been collected before the end of the world right because i don't yeah based on the assumption we can't assume that anything has grown post the end of the world in era one yeah i still like there's still the fact that i get that it's not it doesn't perfectly fit into the allomantic like matrix mm-hmm. but there are still atm mistings that can be born and exist and potentially right. still do they just don't have access to it like there's something more intrinsically built into the alimantic table than just, oh, it's an additional metal that was the god's body, I think. Okay. I I think that they get into this conversation a little bit later. So I'm going to hold some of this for them talking about the philosophy of the alimantic table, which I think comes in the chapter where they're in Renette's house. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll discuss that then. But I, I want to hold this until we have that perspective because they do believe that the rule of 16 or the number of 16 has been broken by their understanding of alimantic principles, according to the words of founding. So like the entire book by the entire book, I mean the entire like 
principles of allomancy may be misfounded <sighs> by that comment. So we'll hold until we get there. So a uh, fun conversation. I, I really, I really love, I love the way that era two enriches this story so quickly without creating like a whole ton of divergences. And it does it while also conveying an entire story. So I, I love the way that this encourages conversation in the best way. After a brief divulgence tackling the legality of what they're doing and whether or not they should be going to the constables, Wax pressures and reveals something to Marisi. He knows that she's an allomancer, of course. He he figured it out a long time ago based on the the table that they already had existing. Yeah. Or he assumes. As, so, at the as soon as she said with conviction and certainty that Steris wasn't an allomancer, I'm like, oh, because she's one. I assumed it was because <laughs> she was a, a seeker, which isn't the case. But so I was right for the wrong reasons. But yeah, I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah. OK, be that certain. I got you. I understand. I'm assuming it's more of a, a coming from a place of jealous, like jealousy or something like that, that she's an Alamancer and Steris isn't, even though they're not like from her perspective, it's a useless metal. It gets really interesting when we consider it all a little bit later, right? When we think about the fact that Steris and Marisi are half siblings, not cousins. This is made out to be. Yeah. And even here, we're still believing that they're cousins. This is where it becomes a little bit more strictly interesting, where it's it is a division between these two siblings. And that's where I think you can see this start to mentally harden between these two characters, where she's like, I need to make it not a big deal because Steris is also the heir, the heir to the throne in a big way of the family. So like there's there's a lot there. I I agree with you. It's just like it's it's a very complex situation between these two sisters and we don't have Steris's side of the equation yet, but from Marisy's perspective, we've got a lot. We know Marisy knows, but do we know if Steris knows? No, we don't. Okay. Either way, you brought up legality of what they're mm-hmm. doing and that conversation is obviously a very complicated little bit there's quite a bit of irony that goes into it especially considering wax later commenting on putting a rogue former fellow longman or lawman down personally mm-hmm. like it's all right and also the comment of like <laughs> once a lawman always a lawman like mm-hmm. you can't you can't take that badge off like you can take the title off but you can never take the rest of it off yeah which maybe that's justification for what he's like it's simultaneously justification and ironic like contradiction i think so i i think i agree with that i i don't think that there's any because the law dictates that he should be passing this information on to the prop through the proper channels but he's like right following one part of the lawman path and just ignoring the other part yeah totally and which is what miles is doing right and miles is miles is extracting it to like a social level which is very different versus like a a socioeconomic level which is kind of what wax is doing like they, they've got very different approaches to what they're doing and their impacts of lawmanship but i i don't think that that removes either in theory from the consequences outside of the perspective of the victors which i think is important to clarify because i think that if miles could win 
Wax is in the wrong. If Wax wins, Miles is in the wrong. That's just sort of the nature of these like dichotomous, neutral, lawful forces going against each other who hold different beliefs, but both adhere to this idea of the general benefit of humanity while following their own moral codes. Like that's that's the dualistic nature of having two characters that are both law keepers, but on different sides of opinions. It's not that one's evil or one's good. It's just that they hold different ideals. Yeah. Oh, that makes man. it tough. That it makes, makes it for really such tough. a good story in so little time. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. I, lo- I love it. So the chapter ends with Wax fingering the earring in his pocket and thinking about Harmony and what he'd do, want him to do. I know. I, I also, I realized I wrote it and I was like, fingering his earring is like just such a good, it sounds so good. It is so bad. I can't help it. We're too late. <laughs> to give up... <laughs> This path of chasing criminals and let the constables do it or to do it himself. We already kind of we we discussed this a little bit, but I think specifically bringing Harmony, his God, into the equation as he's fondling the ball in his pocket, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it brings to mind for me what what was going through my head, I guess, while I was reading this was mm-hmm. what would Sazed have said to Vin if she came at okay. him with this question? And I think it would have been something along the lines of, I can't stop you even if I wanted to, but also I know you're the best person for this job and I trust your judgment. Like, I think that's the way Sazed would have gone about answering this sort of complex, deep conversation and question from Vin. And it, I feel like that kind of applies here to, to Wax talking to effectively Sazed through, through this. Or what we assume to be Sazed. Maybe it's not. Yeah. Maybe it's right. I mean, we, we do back. assume it to be Sazed. Ruin's back. Oh, maybe it's... Ruin, Ruin stole Sazed's body. And Ruin, Ruin is harmless. Preservation is harmony, but maybe it's a corrupted version of Sazed. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I I totally get where you're coming from. And it it is, it is tough to say explicitly here. And I wonder, like, leave this as almost a nugget. For me, it was less about like a prediction or a thought or like what you're going to do or what you think and more like a keeping the path in line, keeping harmony in mind. You know, how do we think about the story going forward? And Brandon pro- poses that to us. And I wanted to make sure that we didn't miss that as we think about the rest of this. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to solidify your judgment. I just want to let you know that I'm seeking your opinion. So we start chapter 12 and we get Wayne trading his hat with the man as he gets out of the carriage and storing as much health as he possibly could have inside of that interaction, making him very ill as he runs to catch up to everyone. I love how whenever we're inside of Wayne's POV, we really get to see how much he appreciates the accents, language, and the way that people hold other people in their minds. He's got this very cognitive idea of the way that people are and he he tries to take in as much information when he's out in public as possible to understand them this is something that actually is really interesting to me because it's something that is preached inside of writerly books being like whenever you're in public take notes like mental notes of what you see people doing their behavior everything else because it will inform everything else that you do and it's so interesting to see wayne do this as someone who is mostly a character actor because they Obviously, uh, writer-actor overlap in in terms of performances and the like. He's almost as skilled as most writers and soothers are in previous entries at this trait himself because he can break down an accent 
It's just changing a small note in addition to obviously aping the pretzel guy and moving to aim that doing going forward. But yeah. thoughts on the whole thing. So thoughts on the whole thing. I want to get into the riot or soother thing, but mm. I think this is a good time to point out the my appreciation for the fact that Wayne is always like just constantly in his perspective and mostly in other people's perspective. He's coughing and sneezing throughout the entire thing, the entire story. And it's just a little hint that he's, he's storing his health throughout the entire, the entire time. Much like wax mentions that he's running at three quarters weight the entire time to store weight just in case he needs it. So I don't know. Nice to see a physical representation and reminder of that throughout the entire like story and interaction with him from other characters. But Rider Soother thing is a great comparison. And I I hadn't considered that, but it is very, very true that he's able to do similar, similar. He's able to achieve similar results and goes, goes through it in a similar way as they do. I really appreciate his breakdown of accents and language and demeanor and outfit and personhood in general from the people that he's interacting with and whenever he dons a specific persona. Yeah, he he talks about how the last thing he's able to steal is accents, but it's it's clear to me at least that either he's in, he's stealing entire personas, like in, entire like personalities. Or he's very good at making them up and fleshing them out he's, and giving them backstories. Yeah, he's he's trading. He's making trades for certain things, right? Some of these trades might may even be subtle. Like when he's having the conversation with the guy to trade his hat, he is talking to him and continuing to talk to him. And so he's gaining things. This is why I brought up the, like the perspective of Wayne's trades, which is that he might give something less for something more. And at the same time, someone might anticipate what he gives as something less. Right. Because Wayne from interpersonal communications gains a ton. The more that he can talk to you, the more he knows how you talk and how you act and how you behave. He's ingesting that. He considers that stealing, though. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm trying to equate it to. I'm trying to equate to sometimes it is a trade because if he can talk Mm. more, he can make the balance of the equation of the trade more even, which is why. He's like, I'll offer you a pretzel. And he's like, no, a hat will be fine. And he's like, okay, I'm cool with that as long as you're cool with that. Because I got more out of this than you did, but you're good with it. That sounds great. So yeah. he's he's like playing. He's playing his own side, of course, predominantly. But at the same time, he's really seeking, seeking equity in all of these interactions as much as he can, mm-hmm. including even all the way back in chapter 10 or 9, 9, the exchange of information between prisoner 1 and prisoner 2 is like totally meant to like benefit as he like lets out prisoner 2 and he's like, dude, you need to quit this life and do everything else against this. This, Those are our first hints of like Wayne being a regretful criminal. And so we kind of start to see that pay off over the course of the rest of the story that we've read so far. And I I just love the way it manifests here inside of him trying to trade for things. And I feel like these are varying degrees of payoffs and varying degrees of setups. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So fucking good. It's really fun. It's so good. It's really good. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say it's really it's beyond just being well done. It's very, very fun to read. Yeah. Yeah. Wayne's perspective is 
brilliant. I think truly. I think it, I think it is. He's our boy. This could. He is our boy. This could be a character that is strictly a joke. Strictly a joke. This could. To draw a comparison, Severo at times in the original trilogy feels like this. I I would go as far as saying that he mostly feels like that. Yeah. However, I think that he does have some other depth and we don't need to get into that. But I, I think that Wayne escapes some of the Severoisms that I would place upon him because we're inside of his POV and we add a little bit of depth with the way that he kind of trades and exchanges with things a little bit deeper. So, yeah, them's them's my thoughts. As a group, they begin to work out how the Vanishers could possibly be going about their elaborate schemes to steal iron ingots and all of the rest that they've stolen. They quickly rule out sliding as it's too expensive and the bubbles themselves would be too small. They need to like have a series of redshift, blue shift bubbles in order to even try to overlap to steal these things. It couldn't work as big as they wanted to. They search for machinery that could have been used to conduct the robbery, but come up short here too for the time being. What do you think of this whole investigation? I mean, it's groundwork. It it's yeah. it's groundwork that's very very well done and and not boring to read. <laughs> you true. know, it's gaining insight and it's giving us in, information on additional powers that could be used. Yeah, okay, I dig it. Wayne and Marcy have a bit of time to themselves, and he makes a joke about her figure, and she reacts like clouds above, like fields, which is like very much like. This is the most sexual that Brandon has been in a book that we've read, and it's an obscure reference to to boobs and vaginas. Like that's <laughs> as close as we can get is <laughs> through Wade, but it's clouds and fields. And fields is a bit of a pejorative. Like I don't like that, but uh, I mean, whatever. What do you do? You know, you, you take an ounce, you, you give a pound, but clarifies that he strictly meant it as a compliment, which. I mean, from Wayne, I can actually understand. I think from anyone else, as I understand most people inside of the world, everything else, this would come off as such an insult and only to Marisy because of her understanding of Wayne as a person at this point doesn't make sense. Yeah. He's a little neurodivergent. <laughs> There's another comment about the use of the word broad later on. Yes. It falls into the same same category. <laughs> Yeah, Wayne Wayne has a lot of like off color jokes that he tries to like he's like, no, 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 I didn't I didn't mean it that way. But like he doesn't say like, no, no, no. But he instead shuffles back in his own semi logic, which is functionally very fun inside of mm-hmm. the narrative. But at the same time, is like I can see this being insulting to the wrong person for <laughs> sure. Unfortunately, uh, not unfortunately, Marcy is not the person to be insulted by this kind of thing. So it makes sense. But you could absolutely, I, I could even see Steris being insulted by the way that, like, Wayne is talking about, you know, Marisy right now, for sure. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty true. Yeah. But we also find out that she's a pulser as this conversation continues and has the opposite power that Wayne has to slow down time within a bubble. What do you think of this ability and her opinion that it's near useless and the other propositions that surround it? My immediate thought, at least in relation to this story and like the the type of antics that I can expect the screw to get into. For example, they could all jump underwater to evade gunshots, evade bad guys, and then stay underwater for way longer than anybody should be able to. 
and oh, good be point. fine. They could drown themselves longer. Hmm? They could I'm, drown themselves longer. Yeah, but they'll. Yeah. From their perspective, I mean, they've yeah, only experienced right. twenty seconds, two minutes of drowning. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, not drowning, but holding their breath. Well, right. Yeah. And holding your breath turns into drowning when you run out of oxygen, but they won't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So something like that. I'm sure I could come up with more situations, situations yeah. where it'd be really, really In helpful. Space, like it'd be pretty useful. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's from this perspective of what they're doing now from her perspective as a student and as a like noble woman, effectively, like what's she going to do with it? I can totally understand why she would see it as useless when she's not in like any sort of action. Yeah. I I think there's more to come here, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no action that can be taken, but I I I wanted to more point towards I I understand exactly the lens that you took on this question. Like I understand exactly the frame that you were talking about. I just wanted to think a little bit more about her thoughts on like the absolute of like her value being devalued because she has this like allomantic ability that's relatively worthless inside of the spectrum of things. We obviously can think of some uses that make sense, but like her personal internalized feelings about this, this gets compounded upon later when we understand the family lineage and things like that a little bit more firmly. But I I just want to know to electric boogaloo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fair point. (laughs) So she's I mean, going to become like, a Mistborn. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, it follows Spook's path of <laughs> person from their own perception having a useless ability. Oh, no. Looking up to other Alamancers and feeling inferior and then being bestowed upon by a god the ability to be I, a hero, as they say. True, which is a little <laughs> bit different. Like you're being granted superpowers by a being, which does not mean that you've earned superpowers as a and being. Which doesn't is very make different. you a hero. And doesn't, yes, also does not make you a hero. God damn it, Spook. But Spook did some heroistic things. So I'm, I'm not going to completely no, fault it, but like his initial, yeah, I agree with you. I understand exactly. The fault the isn't with Spook. The fault is with how everything was described around like what Spook was. Yeah, right. All all that said, I feel like one of the great things about Marisi at the very least is like on the outset, she doesn't want to be a hero. She, in a negative way, doesn't believe that she can be almost because of some of these beliefs about like her powers, like what she's capable of as a woman and like what she should be doing. But at the same time, she's content with the life that she has and in mm-hmm. the sort of style of life that she has. So she's in a complex place like the 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 general were men talking about this so this is a little bit weird to like mention but like the the feministic urge to go like woo woo like you could do better babe like do do what you want and and cheer for more is is a good thing but she's also she likes what she has access to she appreciates it so it feels like she's kind of contra i think that's kind of what she was getting at earlier with the yeah i well i yes she she is and i I say that in in context of she's in a healthy place where she values herself for what she is and appreciates who she is. Yes, entirely. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. So she doesn't have any of like the self-worth self-worth problems that Vin had, so that makes her 
on a much leveler playing field to call out the things that she wants for the most part. But she does still feel some disvaluation based on her powers with Alamancy and other things like that. And obviously her state instead of the family is like kind of an offshoot. We'll get to that a little bit later, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's, I don't want to say it's wishy-washy, but it's, it's dicey. Like she's, she has a societal opinion of herself and then she has like a needing opinion of herself and like what she wants to achieve. So it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. It seems like Wax may have put something together as he finds a large imprint in the ground. We move perspectives over to Waxilium at this point, and he tries to piece together the puzzle regarding the potential fate awaiting the abducted women. But he's sure that Miles will need one more heist to pull it all off. Wax hears a scream and turns, turns down the train coming to realize that Miles is right behind him and shooting at him. I really appreciate the intelligence displayed here, understanding all of the analysis, like all the analysis that Wayne put, ah, all of the analysis that Wax put into this, understanding how much aluminum was stolen versus how much he would need for this operation and the amount of wealth that that carries with it. Whole thing. Super well done. What a way to jump into action. It seems like <laughs> this is that breakneck speed that we've been talking about. Like it is a whole lot of transition between exposition and action that took a lot longer in the previous books. Yeah, right. This is this is the bridging of that effectively to like make us go from piece to piece without having large pauses in a most of those pauses feel like they were cosmological in origination, like they were trying to get us to think about either religion or the cosmology or like something deeper about the world versus this is like world character realization action, world character realization action. It's got it's so much more. It's so much better balanced as a story goes, which I think is what I love about Era 2. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. Cool. With that, we move into chapter 13, and we jump into, my friend, one of my favorite tropes in any story ever, which is a train action sequence. <laughs> ever since seeing, like, early Indiana Jones and, like, some of the young Indiana Jones stories and everything else, my brain is locked into cool train sequences. I don't know what the fuck it is. I love it. I will die for it. I adore it. It is so cool. Wayne is inside of, or Wax is inside of the train. He explodes in glass and rolls around the top of the train trying to find himself, trying to keep himself, excuse me, from getting shot as he continues to put the pieces together as Miles chases him around this train. It's so cool. It's so great. He uses different elementic abilities to keep himself out of reach and he confirms that even after shooting the man in the eye, he manages to heal up incredibly quickly unseeming to most people which means that this can only be miles hundred lives so much so that this moment reminds me of terminator 2 with like the metal terminator like healing in different moments and like freezing and taking the bullet and then reforming yeah. that that metal god yeah. it feels so distinctly similar i love it yeah that's a good call on terminator it's so good yeah <laughs> it's really good i can't remember if i brought it up before but I think later on there's a comment on Miles putting a shotgun to his own head to prove to his men how unkillable he is. Like it gives this really astonishing, horrifying understanding of how just unkillable and invulnerable this person is as a as a double gold. 
Yeah, and that's that's what I find so fascinating. And that's why I draw the comparison to T2 because it literally feels unstoppable. It literally feels like there is no way to prevent this man from marching forward to your inevitable demise, which is what all of T2 points to is like, You've got all these people in the way, you've got technology, you've got you've got social problems, and T2 can figure out all those out. And so it literally takes smothering him in magma to to solve the problem. And Miles feels like the same kind of issue right now. Like he yeah. it feels unstoppable. Mm-hmm. It does. I wonder what would happen if you choked him out. Hmm. I would assume. So if we're imagining choking, being a constricting of muscles, and this gets into the exhaustion question that is posed later by Wax, like, can he get exhausted? I would assume that gold would strengthen the muscles and like recuperate the muscles to like reform their same position repeatedly, because that's what they do in the moments in which like anything is bruised, damaged right. or broken is when you, you stretch it the way that it's not supposed to, it unstretches like it pushes back as we understand it. So that's so, that would be my assumption. Just blocking your mouth and nose then? Would he uh, would he die to that, lack of oxygen? I guess is what I'm yeah, asking. I, I think he'd die to drowning. I, I he can't produce more oxygen without I totally think so. But I totally think I get, he could die to drowning. The lack of oxygen does damage to your brain. And if that damage that. is being repaired instantly. See where I'm going with this? A little bit? Yes. Like, what What does lack of oxygen actually do, and is that a process that can be healed? Yeah. I... How far deep question. does this go, I guess, is my question. Right, <laughs> right, right. How How far deep does the reparations go, or do does the repair, repairing nature of the metal go? Hmm. Great question, as it relates to drowning. And, like, well, and think about, like, repairing... The mind when it's deprived of oxygen. I burped on. I burped on tape. That's crazy. There's like two of those. There's like two of those and two of me vomiting. So like we're even keel now. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. I don't know that we have the answer at this point. I don't know that I can fill in the answer for you necessarily. That's fine. I don't. I'm not expecting to. Like I know there's not. Right. An answer here. You're throwing out things. I'm just curious. Yeah. And man, while there's a lot of fire exchange between the two pairs of people, it's crazy to see how much better of a shot Wax is versus Miles' previously mentioned strategy of bigger gun gauge and like bigger ammo gauge, like hit a larger target and kind of a one get them done strategy. Eventually, Wax manages to shoot the aluminum weapon off of the train, knocking it well out of Miles' reach. What do you think of this scene in terms of the way that it sets these powers against each other? So... I need to constantly remind myself that we're not dealing with Mistborn and that aluminum is not like pull or pushable <laughs> because I'm like, oh, they're fine. They can just grab it. What does reach have to do with anything? <laughs> and I just have to constantly remind myself of that, that this is a different, not a different set of rules, but a different situation that we're dealing with in this story versus mm-hmm. what we were in the previous trilogy capabilities yeah 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 so that's what i thought about this sequence it was super cool it felt almost specifically firefly-esque in that train sequence because of the like sci-fi western feel to it so i don't know that's where i was at 
Yeah, I can I can equate a lot of my like humor comparisons and everything else to Firefly, which is I feel like not all the time and not immediately, but this does feel like it has at the very least the tinge of Weedon-esque humor from Firefly. Like I, to me, it's not like it's a, a spiritual inheritor or anything like that, but it does run with a lot of the same tropes and the same humor concepts because Brandon mm-hmm. has said he's been directly impacted by Whedon's humor. So, yeah, that makes sense. It does. Yeah, yeah, tracks for me. And it's sci-fi and man, versus fantasy, but like at this point it doesn't really Like we make- said, this is this is sci fantasy to me. Yeah. Like this this approaches a degree of you have so much reality baked in that you start to create a different spectrum of of things. Like it is fantasy, sure, in the way in imagination, but you've grounded so many things that you know right. what what's what at this point. What 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 I really love our villains feature circling around the ineffectiveness of lawkeepers as generally a way to keep order in the world. I serve the law. My wax says I served it too. Miles called, but I now serve something better. The essence of the law, but mixed with real justice An alloy wax. The best parts of both made into one. I do something better than chase the filth sent to me from the city. What an amazing speech. It's brief, but it's it's great insight and great insight into his own motivations. It's a really pure form of vigilanteism, maybe one that's a, maybe not pure, but simple. It's a simple form of vigilanteism that's been maybe taken advantage of by the suit, whatever it is. Hard to hard to tell at this point. I'm not going to pretend to know. And uh, in general, I think it's it, it's a sentiment that I can get behind and can't necessarily fault him specific. I agree with you. I think that's what makes miles such a fascinating character is he drives this line between like we said earlier, he's lawful neutral. Like he's not really striving for evil means. He's actually striving closer to good means towards his moral cause, which is to say that like negate wealth negate a lot of things and you can create a better society which isn't that different from what kelsier preached in the beginning which is why it makes sense in the end that he thinks that he's founded in some degree on the survivor's principles so like he he seeks that he feels that and that's deeply foundational to his character right yeah all right after finishing that part of the conversation miles pulls out an aluminum knife and stabs himself through his left arm and we get an explainer of the hundred lives name as well as i think a bit of an explainer to maybe gold savantism this idea that he can numb himself and heal himself at the same time it might just be effective compounding actually if you come to think of it because savantism with gold would feel like knowing everything about your future path but it could be gold savant compounding savantism just an understanding of everything as it relates to your immortal self could be the way that makes either way as we think about it yeah right it's stuff to parse but either way max max miles and wax exchange once more and wax goes flying from the train car and manages to save himself using his twin born ability to lighten himself and push Uh, against reducing the fall as best as he can. He picks himself up, dusts himself off, and launches into the air, pushing against railroad tracks and propelling himself back towards the train. It feels very Magneto-ish when he does that. It's like hands behind, like pushing forward, 
He can follow the track back to the train and is able to launch himself at that speed. He gets up there and finally knocks Miles off the train with a well-done shove on a cartridge to kind of put him down in the earth while the train continues forwards. What'd you make of this whole... This is a this is a lot to talk about in a scene, but at the same time, it's mostly action. What'd you make of the whole thing? Yeah, it's mostly action, and it's the sort of action that is reminiscent for me of the the fight sequences of old, as I'm calling sure. them now. It's not quite the same, but there is there is that sort of cadence to it that... I've grown to appreciate. So it was fun to see that come, come in. Yeah. It definitely gives you a picture of what you're going to be experiencing. And like, yeah, I agree with you. While it's not as meaty all the time, it, it does still give you enough to be like able to thread everything together and understand exactly what's going on and paint those very clear pictures. Mm-hmm. We then move to wax and co in the closest train station, recovering a bit before the journey can continue. They discuss Mercy's education and pop off little jokes about anatomy and the knowledge therein. I find the exchange about the number of bullet wounds just the bullet wounds that Wax has experienced to be like this moment as as Mercy remembers it and and like Mercy remembers five, but there's actually seven to be like a almost don't meet your heroes kind of moment, which resonates I think a lot through this chapter where like it can be. I, I think don't meet your heroes is meant to be a disappointing thing. Like it's meant to be something that disappoints you naturally. I think in this case, it's something that is kind of the opposite. It's a hopeful kind of perspective, but it still paints a very different picture where like meeting your hero still isn't the same as whatever is written about your hero. They're a person. They're very real. They're so yeah. there's a little bit of dissonance there, but nonetheless, I, I still feel that. Yeah. Yeah. There's sort of the inverse of it in this sense but throughout this section there is the more traditional don't meet your heroes conversations i think it's earlier on if i remember correctly and maybe it's not we'll get to it but just the commentary about how all of his most famous gets were entirely motivated by money or the fact that he hadn't eaten in several days or what have you oh yeah and like it's a very different picture than this noble lawman that that, that's written about brave yeah champion right yeah that might be later on i can't remember i feel like there's a lot of jumping i think it's (laughs) er, i think it's earlier i think it's earlier it might be the next chapter with mary or at renette's place but i don't for some reason i don't feel like it is we do get some stories in renette's place particularly about blow but i thought it might have been at the same time as that Mm. it might not be i I think it was earlier i I don't know point being though like i i think it still stands to to register that the there's a conversation here that's happening naturally between marisi and wax which is meeting your hero and the expectations therein that you might have of them and their behavior as such Mm -hmm. i feel like wax is painting a better picture of most people who worship their heroes, then I think a lot of people who say don't worship your heroes think comparatively, even though he's not painting a perfect picture, he's still, you know, it's a disjointed one at the very least. It's true. So we end this chapter settling that they need to head somewhere safer and the wax and Wayne inadvertently settle on going to Renette's place because no one's going to look for them there. Right. That, this has been mentioned a couple times in this section or chapter, and cool, decide to go there. I want to know, 
like the 16th, like 16th descendant of the Ladrian house being sort of an Easter egg, as you described it. I'm wondering if Renette is also an Easter egg, the name itself being Valette Renew kind of smashed together. Wow. Yeah. Or if there's something, if it's not related at all or something different, I don't know. That's interesting. Hmm. I I see what you're saying. I just never had maybe drawn the connection between the two. It does feel like a God, what's it called when you smash two things together? It's a portmanteau. Portmanteau. Yeah. That's what you said, right? It yeah. just Discord oh. cut out the first half. So yeah, port a portmanteau. It does kind of feel like a portmanteau, but I'm not sure that it's trying to reach that direction. She does have the same paranoia as Vin slash Villette, so that makes sense. I don't know that she has the regality of Renew or anything else. So I'm trying to make sense of that sort of things, but it does it feels reminiscent enough that I would give you the it, concept. Yeah, I, I think it'd be more just a, I got to name this character. Maybe I'll <laughs> nod to Valette Renew. Fair enough. Fair enough. I don't yeah, think it has I, to be can, deeper than that, but I'm curious yeah. if that was an inspiration. A namesake. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay, with that, we're going to actually talk more about here. So we're going to move into chapter 14. They wait on the doorstep of Renette's place, and Wax gets the door slammed in his face, <laughs> and they get hustled off the steps at gunpoint. This this only gets worse as we continue. I, I love the fact that the, like, the count to ten, but it's like more of a count to three. It's like five, four, six, seven, eight, and it's like there's just like a rush there that happens between the vocalizations, and it just it it's so cleverly driven to be like you don't have ten seconds, you have three, but I'm going to count to ten to like hopefully give you a sense of the fact that yeah. you can do it faster. You know, it, it's it's a great little bit. It rattles everyone. Wayne, of course, convinces her to open the door with a bribe from a distance, which I think is great. From like Wax's pocket, bribes her without his knowledge in the moment, and. It's it's one of those aluminum revolvers that he'd managed to recover from the train robbery. She runs through a bit of a composition that would lead to this idea of an aluminum gun and its functionality that I think is wonderful as we start to break into the room itself and we see her character kind of melt a little bit behind this opportunity for discovery. Yeah, hey, we, we've talked about this quite a bit already, so I won't dwell on it too much, but this is another highlight of Wayne's trading and... Mm -hmm. Perception of value seems pretty spot on. Seems pretty good yeah, at it. He's doing a great job at the at the whole thing. So yeah, I would I would agree with you. It it definitely mirrors that idea. And he's he's trading for what he needs. He's trading for safety. He's trading to not be shot. He's trading for a number of things here, which is a home base that they don't really have because they can't even go back to Wax's place because they don't know who's a spy and who's not potentially. Not that there's even there's a more than zero chance as they they anticipate it. So. Marisi, though, we, we switched to her perspective and all told is not immediately fond of Renette, especially after she refers to her as an ornament. What an insult. <laughs> it's, it's one of the best insults I can think of to call someone an ornament on on top of someone else. Yeah, I. I'd probably take similar offense if I were in her shoes, but I would be lying if I said I didn't laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> You, you and I have a penchant for unique insults, so I, I would expect you to laugh if someone called you something unique. You'd you'd catalog it, and then we'd talk about it in post. Because we, we've mm -hmm. often, ever since early 2012, 2011 maybe even, 
D9 coined the the term that meant nothing and this was intended to mean nothing but like bitch ankle like we've latched into the idea of unique insults which i think is also a reason that we loved wilfred so much is wilfred also had so many unique insults and we we just like latched into this idea of calling someone like a uh i i i mean like i i can't think of it immediately but like we we just latched in this idea of like creating unique insults out of a smattering of words slammed together to either describe someone or maybe not, but describe yeah. something that's so offensive that they would be offended. Like <laughs> that's, that's the strange combination of things that we loved. Yeah. It's definitely a shared source of yeah. humor for us. Oh, for sure. For sure. But this I, I isn't, think the POV this switch... isn't like wrong though. This isn't like irreverent. This isn't like nonsense. This is calling her a trophy in ornament. Like, some someone pretty that's just there to be there oh from renette's perspective for sure like yeah. that is definitely that's definitely it i i'm trying to address it from the perspectives that we see which is both marisies and otherwise but you're right renette definitely sees this in the moment as like who the fuck is this pretty girl that you have along and mm-hmm. she calls her an ornament a trophy to an ugly set of dudes that she otherwise has seen many times yeah you know yeah the usual pair so to speak <laughs> Exactly. That said, I, I think the POV switch is really smart on Brand's behalf. On the whole, this change, this changeover between perspectives means that we aren't just exploring Renette's place through a familiar internal monologue or something that could be explainy, but instead get a fresh perspective as Marcy looks around the room on this sort of introverted gunsmith and is able to take in all of these different details. I figure you'd appreciate all the little flourishes that Renette has gone through to make her iron lurcher abilities work for her as well in these abs it, it just feels like such absolutely i did yeah oh i was my waiting God. for this i've been waiting for this for months like a full <laughs> fucking quarter yeah yeah this May, is exactly how i would conduct my life as a lurcher yeah <laughs> it's perfect oh you can man. make it work so easily mm-hmm exactly I think it's been it's since the first book that you've asked me like what I would want to be. It's been um, pretty consistent. I, I did, and I think you've always settled on lurcher. Like you, you've just been staunchly in support of lurcherism, and for this reason, <laughs> I think that I was waiting. I was waiting this whole time for you to hit Renette because Renette has made the lazy lurcher work so well because the way to like open doors like clasp and like grab things together and like have a pulley system that can pull the door up and down like pull it towards the center because you're pulling on metals it makes sense like all of the mechanisms to make this work make perfect sense for lurchers it's not something that we would think about as as normal people but i think that like even x-men thinks about this kind of shit in the way that like doors open and things work and I don't know. I, I think it's great. I love that you latched into Lurcher. I just tend to be your Renette. I'm wax entirely, <laughs> like in terms of power choice. And I understood that from the get go. And I thought that that was very funny that we landed in these character types before you knew the full context of things, which I thought was just I thought it was genius. And I think it was really funny as we look back at all these episodes because you've you've been so firm on that from the beginning. Yep, that's true. So I like her. <laughs> oh, I do. I, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. 
Yeah. So we get a big piece of news here, and I don't think you had keyed into it in last week's episode or anything like that. But we find out from the internal monologue that Marisi is Steris's illegitimate sister. Did you see this coming? Nope. Hadn't considered it. Never crossed my mind to question the, the relationship. I like that it's the same story that Vin went through when coming into Lord Renew's place as like, oh, I'm the far off distant cousin. Yeah. There, yeah. there are some parallels there, mm-hmm. but it's it, and that does make it fun, especially considering she's drawn the comparison between her and Vin already in the form yeah. of like, I don't feel like the Ascendant Warrior because I don't need to do this. So it does feel like an apt comparison. Right. There's that said a lot more complication now to the engagement to Steris and <laughs> their relationships they're in. So maybe it's built in kind of built in contra question is there is there like a is there a complication there like there isn't a complication in the sense of the marriage because it's between steris and wax like it's just the fact that we have maybe wax and steris or wax and marisi falling together because of the plot of this book like that's the complication that's, that's what i'm talking about yeah. the- but does that complicate it further because they're re- uh, related more directly like a half sister thing or depends on how the contract's written Sure. Okay. Like, oh, I'm allowed mistresses. to have mistresses, <laughs> but maybe my sister's excluded from that. <laughs> yeah. That's. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not prepared to debate that. So I'm just going to sit that one out text. and let it ride. We do need the text. We need the text of the contract. As mentioned, I've negotiated many a contract. I could do. I just do need page 27, I, I think. Whatever page, page it. You know. I need I need the definition document. So I need the initial definitions of like how everything works. And then I need the sub to signature page because that's where everything happens. So, you know, I need those two documents. I'll evaluate in the middle as we need. And that's where the action happens. Right. The action happens. It's the room where it happens. (laughs) It's the room where it happens. Anyway, uh, some Hamilton for everyone. So. We get information here, though, as we proceed through these chapters on Renette, of course, and Wayne's fondness of her. He chases her and she pushes back. Wax believes otherwise, though, and she's not interested in any man like that. And that brings us to our first potentially queer character in the Cosmere. It's a a little bit of representation, but I got to at the very least mention it, especially since Brandon has been so comparatively to a majority of the Mormon faith has been so supportive of queer people. I feel like this is very important because it does not line up with the immediacy of the LDS faith. And he has consistently hit that and supported that against his own faith. Yeah. Or in support of people accepting that within his own faith. You love to see it. So I got to mention it, even though it's very small. Yeah. Good on you, Branderson. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it does feel like a you acknowledge this like, oh, good, good for you. Thumbs up. But at the same time, in the context of such a politically active faith that is so involved in everything very immediately, especially considering he's a teacher and one of their biggest schools, this is a bigger step out than one might imagine. Like, this is a bigger statement, I think. Was there anything in Elantris from any of the side characters? 
No, not no. that I can think of. I mean, the another thing that we've talked about yet is the sort of like autism representation from Elantris going forward. But like, that's a different thing. That's a different representation standard. But yeah. Yeah, there's that. Elantris did, but. Okay. Yeah. No, it's sweet. It's awesome. Great that yeah. it's in here. I mean, it's it's quick. It's easy. It's not even perfectly clear. I don't want to say that. No, this it's is not, like it's not. This is stone, opaque. But. but at the very least, this is a shred of at the very minimum, like some bisexual ideology here, and maybe at the very most, like lesbianism, whatever. At the very least, it is some form of representation, which we can at the very least pat the man on the back for, especially considering the fact that he adheres to the religion and is, you know. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's a tough point because both him and Dan Wells are liberal inside of a incredibly conservative religion. So it's right. it's an interesting confluence of ideas. So mm-hmm. pretty awesome. It's true. I do agree. The different assortment of ammunition here, though, that Renette provides the Haze Killer rounds as they were is very cool. There's such there's such like a little addition and like a logical boost to Wax's ability to take down this new criminal element that he has to face down. But it's so fucking cool. Like this is this is some like perfectly RPG aimed shit where it's like, I have this to take down this, I have this to do this, I have this to do this. You're gonna fucking do it because you know you want to, baby. And Wax is like, Yeah, I wanna I wanna do it, and he like laps <laughs> it up into his fucking mouth like a you know, but on top of that. He replaces his missing Sterian with a new weapon called an Alamancer-only gun called the Vindication. Like, all of this is so cool. Like, it's such a it's such a wax-centric moment, and I love it. It's, I mean, it, I, first of all, I love the name. It's perfect. Um, mm. The explanation of the Alamancer-only mechanism is gorgeous, but now with this... Renette feels simultaneously like an artificer and a Borderlands gun dealer. Like, <laughs> like she works for Torg? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, she's got a very unique place in the story where she's responsible for like a lot of innovation as we think about it. Like she is inadvertently mm-hmm. like this gunsmith specifically for this warrior out on the on the skirts of things so Mm -hmm. yeah i agree with you here i man, it's so cool i i love i love the explanation of each of these rounds too the way to dismantle tin the way that you might like take out a pewter arm the special like two chamber aspect of this new vindication that he's receiving which is to be able to maybe have two different rounds chambered and be able to silo out different by pulling the hammer back different elementic folks and the idea of this Alamantic gun safety, too, is just fucking genius. Like, it's a fingerprint sensor, but smarter, like, but more limited even in a lot of yeah. respects. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so cool. So clever. Very excited to see this play out. Mm-hmm. The chapter ends by beginning to lay out a plan for what's going to go on in the chapters going forward. Plans, 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 plans. <laughs> mm-hmm. When are they just gonna do something spontaneous with their lives? <laughs> I think, I think comparatively, Wayne does a lot of spontaneous. <laughs> no, I, I, know, I know, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the plans too, though. Like, I really enjoy mm. the being laid out. So yeah, I'm not complaining. Fair. I I really love this because I think I think it does such a good job of like encompassing a lot of our thoughts as we move forward in the next chapters. But on top of that, I think it does like a wonderful job of encompassing where these people are at as they're like they are we've i've referred to them as our crew because i think that they kind of replace our idea of a crew and mistborn has this core context of like a group of people working together to solve a problem so referring to them as our new crew in the mistborn context is like this is our group this is our core this is what we're working from and this mm-hmm. is them setting forth a plan for us to proceed from. And I, I just really like that comparison. Yeah. I also really, I, I didn't mention it before, but your comparison to an artificer, of course, makes a shit ton of sense because PJ in our show, Catacomb Party, Tales of Kana, plays an artificer, folks, for like at least 25 episodes at this point. So like you have at least 25 hours of PJ playing a version of Renette you'd be very excited to listen to. Dude, it's so good. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying you're a direct copy of Renette or anything like that, but like a similar role. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Throw rocks. That said. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Throw a rock, get hurt. But I'm emotionally hurt, you know? It's mm-hmm. different. All right. With that, we are into our final chapter of the week. Chapter 15. And seriously, folks, I knew from the beginning that like I was between ending on 14 and 15. This is my debate point. I am so sorry that I didn't communicate it properly. This should have been the end point because I wanted to begin this conversation about Miles. And we're back with Miles talking with Suit about the end here and the preparations for what we're going to see throughout the rest of the story. And what they plan to do fighting against Wax or Miles to meet their end roughs justice style mm-hmm. so you wanted to end at 14 and then you told everyone 16 uh, no, no 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 i wanted okay. to end through 15 okay okay yeah. okay okay just Fuck wanted to you. just I wanted, wanted to end to through 15 okay i this is where i wanted it to end i wanted us to be in this moment because i feel like it's the most dramatic moment where everyone's planning everything mm-hmm. and then we go into execution for the rest of the chapters. Yeah. So. Okay. Gotcha. I'm with you. Cool. Yeah. Sorry. To, to My man. I fucked up a little bit. I appreciate that we get into Miles's head a little bit more here. And mm-hmm. we get some really great insight into the perspective of this once great lawman from Waynesburg, like how Wayne would see him as this like fallen lawman, but he sees himself as this righteous vigilante vigilante is maybe the wrong term because he's not he's not taking wax is acting and wayne are acting as vigilantes i he's more like a source of justice yeah the justice isn't as direct as like a vigilante superhero kind of person would be it's more justice against the system in kind of a way i don't know yeah yeah i that's what makes it so tough is because it's not it's not there's like not an innate sense of who's right here necessarily but it's it is a sort of it's a morally right philosophy and i think with enough pressure i think wax could actually bend to miles philosophy like there there is something innately there within wax that i think he agrees with and that's what makes it so tough for either of them to kill each other 
is because they both believe that the one or the other is going to bend to their own philosophies. Like they believe that they fit the same ideals. They're like, why are we shooting? Why are we fighting? Why are we doing this? That's what makes them such great, like, dichotomy of character. Like, that's what makes the characters such great dichotomous poles. So, mm. tough. <laughs> yeah. It is. I don't know. I don't know. This is tough. This is tough. Yeah. Yeah. But, that said, we do get a bit more of suit throughout this entire section, as well as the mysterious organization of the set here, who seems to be playing the longer game in the background almost completely like Illuminati style. But they've gone, they've got one final theft to plan, stealing more aluminum and getting ready for the next fight, as it were. Miles is left with a pair of suits and suits his men, here to guide and ensure that he doesn't fuck up. What are your thoughts on this entire exchange as it stands, setting up the background of the character and everything going forward? as it enters the conflict. So I think here is where I initially really came to the realization of like, Hey, you hypocrite, like shitting on the name, the vanishers for it being too pageantrous. (laughs) Come on, man. You're part of a secret organization with the themed name. Fuck off. But trying to figure out who this mysterious person is. And I don't know who this is. (laughs) But I want to. It's not about knowing who it is, though. Like she, like Mister Set, or excuse me, Mister Suit, is is meant to be a little bit separate from our understanding of things at this point. So, like, it's not your fault for not getting it. There's nothing necessarily to immediately get. Mm-hmm. I am excited to meet Mister Trousers and <laughs> Mister Top Hat to produce the set. Mister Cravat. Mr. Shoes. Mr. Very nice Argyle Socks. That was the best. That's the answer. Mr. Argyle Socks, we need you. Here too demands Mr. Argyle Socks. How dare you assume that Mr. Argyle Socks does not exist in Era 2. Fuck you, Branderson. Just kidding. I'm so sorry. Please show up on our show. We'd love to interview you and talk about this. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's really funny. I obviously love your opinion. I think that's right on the money for the most part. And I I just need to escape this by going into the next question. We get a final note here about the powers of an auger and gold misting and more speculation on the abilities themselves. Does this power see branching paths or into the past? How exactly does it function? Even as we know and understand it, as we've understood it over the course of the last couple of books, And he sees those two versions of himself as he sees them diverge over the course of the story and near the end of the chapter, this version of the Lawkeeper and the Vanisher in his own gold burning. What do you you make of this interpretation of something that we believed firm that now seems a little bit squishier as far as magic goes, I guess? We didn't assume it to be firm, though. Because Uh, this is the exact same speculation that he's having that we had. Yeah. So it's it's frustrating that there's not more information now that we get somebody adept in burning gold to give us more information. But it's the same questions that we had in that first book or second book, whatever it was when when Vin was burning gold. I think it was the first book because Kelsey was there. Right. Talked about it. That said, still don't quite understand why he's even 
burning it, right? He's burning it to try to understand the, oh, okay. the differential. So like he's trying to like take into consideration the other side of his powers in the moment. But yeah. Okay. I guess what it could be used for is decision making. Like if you burn gold, go into a really like intense meeting, make a decision. Burn You've gold got again. a really crazy checklist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just every every meeting is a checklist. I'm so yeah. sorry. Yes, yeah. I I understand. But making a decision and yeah. then being able to see whether or not your your like alternate self, if that's how it works, if that changes based on the decision you just made, you could go back hypothetically and unchange that decision if it's early enough to do so. I think part of me thinks that it's like past facts. So like you can't get past certain things, but I understand where you're coming from. Like it, it it's, it's mm-hmm. a tough thing. And I think that's why Brandon continues to interrogate our ideas of augers at this point. It's not as clear as we think it is, despite having a general understanding of what gold does. So like it's the not term auger. Can we glean mm-hmm. something from that? In that other than AU being gold, right? Uh, something churning, something digging, something carrying something away. Right. It's it's a spiral bit yeah. that digs things out to bring it up to the surface, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'll have hmm. to think on that. Or no one knows and they just saw AU. What could we call those guys? Augers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Got it. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> right. I understand. I totally get it. So I wanted to bring it up here, though, for you to anticipate, predict, think about. So mm. there's a lot here. We also get a little note on how Miles sees him, his, himself forged, made by Trell, inspired by the survivor and practically immortal, but still weak as an individual. He settles in and decides to embrace what he is, an outlaw. He heads out knowing full well what's to come, either the death of himself or wax in the future books and mm-hmm. story. So this brings up, again, the term immortal. And this is coming from his perspective. Um, I think that's a character misunderstanding the term immortal. Do you think that's Brandon misunderstanding the term immortal? Or is he actually, does he believe that he's undying? Naturally. I think that he's undying except for age. I I think that it's but a that's misuse what the immortal of the term. part talks about. Like that's in that's really kind of would have been I, right. I, I, I think agree that with this you. is a misuse of the term. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. But like he's still like the tough part is is that he's like still vulnerable to like surface wounds and things like that. He just heals immediately. So like he's still harmable. Like uh, I don't know how else to say it. Like he's he can still does that make sense? Like, I'm, I'm not trying to quantify a instantaneous way. standpoint, but it's it yeah. it's healed so fucking quickly that it's basically not okay. Like, yeah, much yeah. like Wolverine, you yes, it's the same ability basically. Right, right, with the exception of like how you channel it and how you get there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree with that. And Wolverine himself considers himself well. <sighs> His ability is a little bit more interesting because he is also almost ageless to a certain extent. But so like is that got, agelessness tied to his invulnerability? 
his regeneration is tied to cellular regeneration. So, yeah. Well, that's um, let's let's go let's go another even, layer even deeper. A, yeah, <laughs> even at cell- a certain point that fades. So, like after I think it's almost three hundred years, it starts to break down. But that's based on mutation. It's like human mutation is what's a, what that's based on, not like purely strictly. Mm. So, like, it's still science ish driven. So, yeah. eventually he becomes more vulnerable to aging and the effects, but reacts the populations, which I, I think I think we'd reasonably apply a filter, like I said earlier, to Miles's life and say so that he could live longer for sure on average than most people because he could likely cure his own cancer. He could likely burn out a lot of things in his body that would be self-damaging, Alzheimer's and the like. And he'd be able to live longer because he'd do that. I think I put a number on it of like 130 years earlier versus like an average 80, 85. So, yeah, yeah, pretty good. That, just a rough shot in the dark, but an idea mm-hmm. nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. Any, anything get, else? I want to the... get into the weeds on that at some point, but this is not the forum to do so. Right. Now. Right. Right. There, there's some contemplations on the entire existence of the magic system as it stands, and that's not where we're at right now in the story. So mm-hmm. I understand. Anything else on the two gods that he calls out upon inside of this moment between Trell and the survivor? Do they consider the survivor? They do consider the survivor a god, don't they? I mean, one would assume. Yeah. At this point. Did Kelsier latch on to Trellism? I know says it pitched no. it to him. He did. Yep. As a way to accept death. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know what to think of it as far as calling out both of them. I hadn't really considered that. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I, I wish I could go back and like read more about Trellism and cross-reference it with. Conveniently, you can always go back and search all of our notes that I brought up Trell or Trellism. You can That's do true. it. Google. Google will let you do it. Daddy That's Google. It. I'll make I'll make a joke that like I've always tried to call out all of the religions forever so that they're searchable inside of our documents because they're all brought up in different degrees and different intervals and I want to make sure that you have access to all those things if you want to look back easily versus like rereading the whole thing. So at the very least you can go try to find trell or trellism in a lot of places. Okay. Cool. We switch to Wax's perspective, and they're preparing for a robbery. Wayne's off chatting with Renette in the next room over about God knows what, but leaves Marisy and Wax, and they're left to debate what to do about the Phantom Rail car instead of planning kind of the straightforward and what they need to do. They kind of pull this, like, what I'm going to call a Combs and Laudrian special. Guess what each other's plan is and where they fit into each other's ideals of that plan needless to say it's a very flirty way of planning an anti-bank robbery or heist yeah i loved the flirtation of it Mm. and just the total bailout right at the end like the understanding of where this is going and just pulled the ripcord he's like oh yeah you need a gun (laughs) that's what you're thinking about right now yeah (laughs) i called it Wax can't be fully recused of what he was doing in the moment, but definitely like was was playing into a lot of the things. And you can see like both of them kind of like as I imagine this conversation going, it's not like they're leaning closer in for a kiss, but they're leaning in over documents 
like if I imagine this adapted, they're like leaning in, leaning in and leaning in to a point of where they're staring at the same thing and they look at each other out of the corners and Wax pulls away into a different document. Like he he just breaks the conditioning and moves somewhere else because that's the tension shifting moment in which he diverges and is no longer, you know. Yeah. He he breaks that consideration of there being a kiss there or there being mm-hmm. some greater form of affection. Right. Yep. Yeah, we need to we need to write this contract a little bit more openly. I think <laughs> I think that's where this is always going to end up going. Mm-hmm. Or just don't so mess, think that this- or just don't don't save Steris, and then they're all good. Oh wow! <laughs> I mean, like Steris at this point is no more than like a chapter and a half of of character, and we get so much more immigracy. So you can understand where like Wax is trying to like make make Wayne or sorry excuse me Wayne is trying to make Wax and Steris work like that totally makes sense god damn it did I say Wax and Steris I meant Wax and Marisy work and that's that's like the gameplay for him is like I see these people they seem like a natural fit like let's we can do this I can do this I know I know how to play the con man in this scenario (laughs) so he's like down for it right in a big way so yeah, it's it's interesting. It's fun. It lends itself to, you know, there's like there's like a love quadrangle, but like <laughs> Wayne is just like an outside influence on the whole thing. Well, so is and there's like Well, I mean, in Steris <laughs> and Marisy directly interact where they can't love each other, so it's a it's a direct com- competition just for inside of this quadrangle, Wax's affection. And Wayne and feeds Steris into doesn't Wax's even affection. Want the affection that much. She wants Well, so yeah, I mean She's looking at it right now from the legality standpoint. She's looking at it from the trade benefit more yeah. than anything else. But I understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems straightforward, but it is not. <laughs> it's pretty complicated. For sure. For sure. Yeah. <sighs> so with that, at the end of the exchange, Wax brings up Paclo Dusty, a man Marisy knows as a brave lawman, but Wax knows was easily spooked. Wax has an excellent line that I wanted to bring up here that I think embodies this kind of theory and idea of Wax as a person and the way that he thinks about the historicity of the moments that he's impacted and the people around him that he's seen do these actions that are considered heroic in the inner circles of Ellen Dell at the moment. So he says, of Paclo the Dusty, he was brave, Lady Marisy. You see, many people mistake startlement for cowardice. Yes, a gunshot would make Paclo jump. Then he'd run to see what had caused it. I once saw him stare down six men with guns trained on him, and he didn't break a sweat. The measure of a person is not how much they have lived. It is not how easily they jump at a noise or how quick they are to show emotion. It is how they make use of what life has shown them. And to me, again, we've we've spoken a couple of times about like, we didn't spend a lot of time focusing on Brandon's writing in the previous era, but I think this is another example of a wonderful quote that can be extracted and used beautifully to talk about the nature of humanity, the nature of a lot of things. This makes the writing more than just a textual comparison for fantasy's sake. And yeah. I, I think it's I think it's great. It's a lovely passage and a wonderful point. And you're right, it can be plucked out and applied anywhere. Yeah. I think it's a great thing to yeah. leave on too, as far as this section goes. So I, 
I think it is too. I mean, we we technically, we very technically have this wonderful like end page paper that you can definitely read, which includes bits from a long story of like do not become the dark it's the pits of volantia it's alamancer jack exploring this distant horizon that almost feels very indiana jones-esque mixed with jack sparrow that you know feels like it's got this soul to it but that's it it's not immediately impacting on the story and it's very much a skippable page instead of the context so i agree with you it's great it leaves us on this thought of how we're going to proceed into the rest of the story. And I, I really, I really love that. So, folks, that's it. PJ, did you have anything else that you want to mention this week? Anything else we skipped over? I feel like we did a pretty good job. I think we, I think we tackled it pretty hard. All right. Cool. <laughs> Needless to say, that's where we're at. So, with that, we go into next week. We are reading next week, chapter 16, 16 through the epilogue. That's it. We're done. It's the whole thing. We're wrapping up the episode next week with the epilogue. So please feel free to finish the book with us. We appreciate all of those. There are a number of you of whom are our long-term listeners of whom are reading along with this for the first time. And I am so excited to experience this alongside with you. Thank you so much for following us into this journey because I think it's a very unique experience and one that I think we aimed for to begin with but didn't anticipate happening at this point. So we're, I think, very glad that you get to experience this with us. Yeah. So it's great. Happy to have friends. Totally. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you as ever to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep our show's lights on. You can check out all the links in the show notes where you can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, social media accounts, all in one convenient location. As a reminder, this is an Atomic Pylon Media production. So as a part of that, you can go check out all of our other shows that we produce at this point. That would be any future episodes of Hallerpod. That would be Catacomb Party and The Tales of Kana, as well as other episodes that exist there. In addition to a number of other things that we produce on the network, including PJ Symposium of Media and Whimsy, the Words and Whiskey Devil's Cut, the live shows and everything else. So you can find a number of those shows on Patreon.com, as PJ had mentioned slash words and whiskey you can check us out join us there we do this monthly it's a great fucking time join us please dear god we beg of you if you're looking for us on social media words whiskey pod on twitter instagram and reddit is the way to go if you want to send me and pj a message you can send it to words and whiskey show gmail.com you can also join us as we mentioned before at patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey and for the time being we have t-shirts on t public you can follow the link inside of our linked description below that will be shifting in the near future to something a little bit different in general thank you for listening to cross and i argue and bicker and argue and fight and love each other it's fun <laughs> we have a great time <laughs> we have a great time doing this show and i'm so happy that other people seem to enjoy it with us as always i'm very pleased and i'm so glad i i I'm so glad to be here in Era 2, even though it's only the second episode of all of our Era 2 coverage, to be so... I, I'm so proud of a lot of, a lot of this like content that we're talking about and everything else that we've done. I feel like we've done a really good job, so I'm pleased. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.